Sonny McKelsey, this is an absolute pleasure. I We've already gotten to talking, and so let's just get right back into it. You have worked for a very long time to build up our understanding of Indigenous culture, our traditions, um, what the environment means, um, and these original stories. And I think that from my perspective, I'm working every day to learn more about this. And so can you give um, listeners a brief introduction of yourself, uh, and then we can get more into the history that we were just talking about. Okay, my uh, real name or ancestral name is uh, Nachachatsi, but I'm also known as Albert Sonny McKelsey, or most people know me as uh, Sonny. I'm the historian and uh, cultural advisor at the Stalo Research Resources Management Center. I've been working for the Stalo now for 36 years. Actually, in May 20th, it'll be um, 37 years. I just turned 65 last October, so um, retirement is just on the horizon. Can kind of see it ahead. Not don't have an exact date yet. Uh, but uh, over the course of the years of working uh, with the Stalo, I started off as an archaeology assistant, and then I started focusing on different aspects of Stalo culture and history. And so eventually that archaeology assistant name was changed to cultural researcher. And then eventually, as the years progressed, I was actually providing advice about Stalo culture and history. So I became the cultural advisor and the historian. I come from uh, Shohamal. Shohamal means where the river levels and widens. The English name of the place is actually Laidlaw, 10 kilometers uh, west of Hope. Um, I actually transferred there in the early 90s, um, actually from the Boston Bar First Nation up in Boston Bar. Um, that's where my dad is from, but my mother was uh, from uh, uh, Chowethel. I always felt that if I ever transferred down this way, I would transfer to Chowethel. Uh, but my um, ex-wife, are, we're separated, still not divorced, but we're separated, um, comes from Shohamal. And uh, as such, uh, my children are being registered at Shohamal. And so I thought, well, if I transfer down, I should probably just uh, register at the same place where my children are being registered. So that's why I transferred uh, to Shohamal. I think it was 93 or 94 uh, when I transferred down from there. Uh, so over the course of the years, um, interviewing the elders and at first, the so I started working for the Stalo Tribal Council. Back then, there were two different uh, two different tribal councils, and plus the independent bands. Uh, but the leadership at Tribal Council, um, they basically wanted me to focus on interviewing fluent Helk uh, Malam speaking elders, which is which I have done, um, and mainly because of the uh, with Aboriginal rights and title, what they wanted to capture uh, was the perspective that our elders had to especially look at the world through the language, through the lens of the language, through the lens of Stolo culture and, and history. So that's what they're hoping uh, to capture. So over the years, I think I've captured some of that or most of it. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm still working, still looking at different things, still studying different aspects of Stolo culture and history and trying to make things, uh, make things fit. So uh, I have um, uh, seven boys, two girls. Uh, 13, 13 grandchildren. I continue to fish, although these last few years I haven't made it up there because of the restrictions. Uh, but I fish at a place called Eslau, uh, where my great, uh, great, um, great grandfather is buried in the cemetery, who's also your great, 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 great grandfather, uh, Sakhiltal. And I returned there fishing in the early 90s. I ended up, uh, when I transferred from, from Boston Bar down to Shohamal, uh, what I realized up there in Boston Bar, my children, because they were registered 
in Shohamel and registered as part of the Stalo, I knew they wouldn't be allowed to fish up there in my fishing ground up in Boston Bar. So that was part of the reason I made the shift as well. I wanted to ensure that my children had a good uh, had a fishing ground that they could uh, rely on or go to. And so I in, um, talked with my uh, elders, uh, the late uh, Ralph George uh, from Shahamel, the late Bill Pat Charlie from Chowthal, the late uh, Sal Thalmothic, or Grand Chief uh, Peter Dennis Peters from Chowthal. And they gave me four different places that I could fish. Um, Three of the places are already being used, uh, one by a different family from Chilliwack, another one used by my cousin from uh, Seabird Island, the other one used by, by my auntie, uh, your grandmother. And then the fourth one, no one was uh, fishing there. And so um, so I went there and they gave me the blessing and said, yeah, use use the place. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I started fishing was uh, up there at, uh, at the Eslau. So I continued to fish, fish there. There is a lot to take in there. Um, I'd like to give listeners a lay of the land in terms of uh, where we're at, because I just learned in a Stolo Signal podcast, which I know you you help kind of give the background information for, that Helkamalam is considered a de- an endangered language. Yes, it is. Um, indigenous people rely on an oral tradition, uh, which means our legal traditions come from, I think, the moral stories of our understanding of the land, of the mountains, of the environment. And so if we lose the language, if we lose the stories uh, we lose a lot of the laws, yeah. and uh, it doesn't feel like a great state of affairs right now. I had uh, Elder Eddie Gardner on, and he talked about how he's working to uh, keep the sweat lodges going, um, but he doesn't have a replacement. He doesn't have mm-hmm. somebody to kind of take on uh, what he's built up over the years. And as a Native court worker, I know the work that he did acted um, as very meaningful counseling for many of my clients. It wasn't going to a registered clinical counselor, but it was impactful in that it helped clients connect with their culture. Mm-hmm. It gave them a space to uh, debrief, to let out that negative energy. Um, even for those listeners who are like perhaps challenging the idea of like, well, what can a sweat lodge do? We know that it uh, saunas and being in the heat releases heavy metals. We know that it does good for your body to be in those environments and, and share what you're going through. And so from my perspective, I'm very worried about uh, losing these traditions. And someone like yourself working so hard, you've been involved in the authorship of very of a lot of books, and you are constantly willing to go out and let people know about the culture. You do tours. Can you tell us how this all came about? Like, what did you see during your time? Because have you seen things improve? Are you optimistic about where? Oh, we're I've going? seen a lot of improvement over the years, and, and very, um, um, you know, in one sense, you can look and say that the language is endangered because we have one fluent health medium speaker, uh, but we also have adult um, students who have come out of the Salishuli language program, and you know, not all of them, but quite a few of them are, you know, really, you can really see the interest that they have in uh, preserving the language. And, you know, they may not be considered fluent as they would with the last fluent speaker. But at the same time, I think we're learning more. And the, the really encouraging thing for me is young people that are um, getting the interest in, in the language and picking it up as well. And so um, when I look at the language, the it's a real really important to our people because that's a perspective that we need to look at is um, how we relate to our land, how we relate. Uh, you know, to our, to our heritage and all those different things. And it's through the language that creates that. And if we lose the language, and then we may as well be assimilated because we'll lose everything that has to do with our culture 
yeah. in our history. Yeah. So how did you get started in this? What At what point in time did you say, this is a dire state of affairs, somebody needs to hit the ground running and start getting involved? How did you get it started mm. with the archaeology work? Yeah, it wasn't really a decision that I made. It was basically, well, I guess I did make a decision. The decision was because um, I was actually uh, finished a, a course up in Paris. I did a pre-apprentice automotive mechanics course, which I finished. And so I was looking for, for work as an apprentice automotive mechanic. But the thing is that um, prior to prior to going up to Terrace for the two summers, before that, I had worked on the Hope Archaeology Project. And so I really developed a really interest in, in archaeology. But I never really thought back then about becoming like an archaeologist. But it was an interesting, interesting work. And the day I finished my class uh, up in uh, up in Terrace, the, just prior week, two weeks before that, my sister had called me and asked if I was interested in applying for an archaeology job. So I, uh, I said sure. So she, you know, helped me do the do the work to put my application in, and I got hired. But the work was actually starting on the Monday of the last week that I was spending up there in Terrace. But they decided to wait for me, and so I started. So I actually left Terrace on Friday. Got home on Sunday, and Monday morning I had a report to work with the archaeology dig, which I spent the whole whole summer. It's called the Hope Archaeology Project, and this, uh, this is back in uh, 1978. And I think that had a lot to do with shifting my change away from pursuing an automotive as being an automotive mechanic. But I think the bigger thing was when I was hired at Chowtel for a job as as the economic development uh, research assistant. Uh, along uh, with uh, two two of my cousins that uh, that worked with me there, um, uh, Lolly Peters and uh, Ida John, and then working for Ron and Pat John, Chief Ron John or Grand Chief Ron John at the time, and uh, Patricia uh, John was the band manager, and I worked there, uh, and that's when we came up with the Chalthill uh, uh, Co-op and we came up with the fish farm and the agriculture part. Uh, but then I decided that um, I wanted to go into business administration. And so I uh, tried to go back to college. And of course, um, they did the assessments and I, did, I had to go through a, a different uh, program. I can't remember what the program was called. Well, college, CAP, College Achievement Program. So I had to spend one year in the College Achievement Program to kind of bring up my marks. And uh, what happened was... Um, 1985, I actually went to Chowethel and actually did, uh, oh, what do you call it, uh, uh, did, did some volunteer work uh, with them. And I actually did uh, an application for 17 uh, summer student jobs. And of course, uh, Patricia told me to make sure there's one there for me as well. And so I did the proposal and was approved with uh, uh, 11, I think it was 11, 11 or 13 jobs were approved, including my own. Uh, and so I was looking for work. Well, I thought I was going to end up working there, but I also put my application at the uh, employment office here in, in Chilliwack with uh, Judy Douglas. And so what happened was uh, when we got the approval, I was actually at the Chalcel band office and uh, and letting everyone know they, this was approved. We're going to get all these summer students, you know, including a job for myself. It just so happened, though. I won't say who, but there's a band member who was in the office. And uh, when she had heard about this, because right, everybody's kind of all happy and celebrating that they're going to have all these summer students working. And she's, well, it better be just for band members only. And I wasn't a band member at Chowsel. And 
I wasn't sure if she was saying it for to, for me to hear, but anyways, I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't be taking this job. But later that weekend, Judy Douglas called me, uh, the employment worker here in Chilliwack, and she said that Stahl Travel Council is interested in hiring me. And she said, because of my archaeology background, they don't even need to interview me. They said, show up to work on uh, Tuesday morning at eight o'clock. You're you're hired and. I should have been hired on Monday, but the problem was when I got the telephone call from him, from her, it was on a Saturday, but my niece didn't tell me that she just received the call. She answered the phone, and then later on she told me Judy Douglas' phone, so I thought she meant, well, she works at the employment office, maybe call her on Monday, not on Saturday. So I called her on Monday, and then that's when she said report for work. Right. Yeah, so I actually was... Um, uh, um, I was drinking, like, uh, and so when I started the job, like, uh, I quit drinking. I was actually hung over my first day of work. Wow. And when I realized what an important job it was and how interesting this work was going to be, I said, that's it, I'm not losing this job, so I quit drinking. So actually my um, cel uh, celebration for sobriety and my first day of work is the uh, same day. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah, I started the, the job, and it was being an archaeology assistant, uh, basically working with uh, Gordon Mose, who was the archaeologist there uh, at the Stalo Travel Council and also working for the um, <clears throat> Alliance of Tribal Councils, which is the uh, three three nations together, the Sekwatmuk and the Nakamuk and the Stalo, all working against the proposed uh, CNR twin tracking program. Uh, so it was that court case. So I ended up working with uh, elders from all three, three areas, which was really interesting. Uh, but once the, that work with the Twin tracking kind of slowed down, then I started uh, getting other jobs. And actually, for the first two and a half years of working for the Stahl Travel Council, I never had any holidays. It was kind of funny because um, they would give me my two weeks' notice, right? And I knew it was it was coming. Well, actually, when they hired me on the, the after that summer was over, I was planning on going back to college. And uh, Grand Chief uh, Clarence Penner, Cat Penner, and uh, uh, now Chief uh, Mark Point, who were both at the head of the Stahl Travel Council at that time, uh, called me into their office and asked me if I was interested in uh, continuing work for them. They said, we knew, we know that you're going back to college, but uh, can you take a year off and uh, come and work for us and we'll double your wage because I was making minimum wage at that time. And I said, sure, I'll do that. And yeah, that's 36 years ago. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, uh -huh. Yeah, so, but then what ended up happening was... Um, Whenever they ran out of funding, they would give me, uh, you know, give me my notice, two weeks notice. Then on a Friday, I'd pick up my last paycheck. Then they'd call me into the office and say, oh, we received some more funding. You Would you be interested in taking this job on and start start on Monday? Oh, okay, sure, I'll do that. And it wasn't until two and a half years later, we were having a staff uh, staff retreat. And by then, I think our staff numbers had jumped up to around 22, 25 people. And they're doing a circle, you know, staff are getting to speak about whatever they wanted, anything about work, things that were bothering them, things that they're happy about, that sort of thing. And quite a few of the staff were talking about their holidays. And so it came to my time, I was going, wow, do you guys get holidays? <laughs> I don't get holidays. And I, I said, I've been here two and a half years and I haven't had a holiday yet. <laughs> and then I remember um, Chief Mark Point and Grand Chief Clarence Penny kind of looking at each other, chuckling. And then he said, oh, we'll take care of that, Sally. Yeah, so then I was put on um, full time and then started getting uh, start getting holidays. That's amazing. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, just going back a little bit, 
um, about that kind of approach of band members only. Um, I, I worry about that because it feels like we all need to be working together. Like yeah. um, so many Indigenous communities have this um, separated kind of perspective. And you kind of see that when the tribal council is different mm -hmm. than the chief's council. And you see this uh, polit politicalization of like our own people. That yeah. we we all need to be on the same page in so many challenging moments, and it sounds like it sort of hurt you to be like, oh, well, I'm not a member, so I don't mm -hmm. get to. You were so happy, and you were you were working with the band, you were yeah. trying to build that community up. So just because you're not a member shouldn't mm -hmm. shouldn't reflect whether or not you have the opportunity to build up another community. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I know that that still sometimes happens, but I know that was pervasive uh, in the past. Totally a big problem uh, when you look at all the things that the uh colonizers had imposed on us it was a way of separating us right and uh, when you look at being whether or not a band member or not um people could travel wherever they wanted they talked the uh, elders talked about that they're able to do that right and uh and same with uh when you got married uh, you could either go to the groom's home the, the bride could go to the groom's place or the groom could actually go to the bride's home all depended on what the family uh, situation was Right. So when the Department of Indian Affairs came in and created these reserves, created these band lists, you know, that's where they created a lot of a lot of separation. And then, of course, when uh, they imposed their um, surnames on us. Right. Whereas we long for thousands of years had uh, ancestral names. And that's why still today, if you ever attend one of, our one of our gatherings, you'll notice that the focus is always on ancestral names. The protocol is. When you call a witness, you call them by their ancestral name. So when I walk in the longhouse, I'm no longer Albert Sonny McKelsey. I become Nachachatsi. And the family ensures that their speaker that they hired ensures that when they call a witness, they call a witness by their by their ancestral name because that was uh, so important. And when you look at it today, because we're actually just, my own community, Shohamel, um, just talking about this with uh, with my Siam, uh, Ken Jones. And... Um, Surnames have even created division within our own communities, right? So when you look at the surnames of the different people in reserve, on reserves, and then you think, oh, you know, that's the Peters or, you know, that's the Charlies or that's the Georges, right? And it seems to create these divisions. But when you actually look at the, the um, genealogy of those families, they're all related. They all go back to a common common ancestor, right? And then within our society, the two most important uh, ways of relating to each other, and there's a there's a plate on this in, in the Estalicosales Historical Atlas that Keith Carlson had done. But the two main uh, ways of viewing each other is by bloodline, which is really heavy in our in our whole protocols. Like you can't have an ancestral name until you unless you can show the bloodline that you have to that person, that ancestor whose name that you're you're about to receive. Right, so there's that, and then of course, then there's in-laws. In-laws is a very strong, uh, strong connection in the past as well. I think it's still there today. Uh, it is a lot stronger in the past because of the uh, providing access. That's why we also had arranged marriages. Uh, when you look at our territory, which we call Sa'athmuk, uh, and you look from all the way from Yale all the way down to the mouth of the river, and you look at the geography of the land, creates all these different places where there are different types of uh, resources that come from right so you can't get um, clams and you can't get crabs from Yale right and then you, in Musqueam you can't get dried salmon because you can only dry salmon up in Yale and so forth there's many other many other examples as well 
And so in order to access those resources, you had arranged marriages, right? Yeah. And so we had the different classes too. We had the upper class, the smalath, which were the um, worthy people, the satechem, the not so worthy people. And of course, the third class was what we call the squiath, the, the slave class. So basically the slave class didn't have any connection uh, to the land. Uh, the smalath were the ones that had the elders and had the knowledge and of all who their relatives are up and down a river, and they're the ones that made arrangements to arrange marriages so they could have access uh, to a different resource, right? And then the Satecha might have been people that didn't have as many elders as the Smalath, and so didn't have elders to teach them the importance of sharing, the importance of being hardworking, and uh, that sort of thing. So that's why the Satecha had lazy people. And sadly, the I know a lot of people put a big emphasis on warriors as well today, which is, you know, that's uh, something from across the Rocky Mountains. Uh, but in our area, the warriors are actually viewed as uh, as a middle class, uh, as a techem, not really as part of the smalath. And of course, there's the chapter that talks about that. And uh, uh, when uh, Keith Carlson, one of the things he did was interview the um, Stall of Veterans. And that's one of the things that he found was that they, that uh, stigma was still there, that uh, when they came back from the some of our veterans came back from the war. That's what they said. Well, you know, you're a, now you're a lower class because you went out and fought, you know, and also questions about why did you even go fight for this country? This country doesn't accept you, that sort of thing. You know? Yeah, I interviewed Scott Sheffield, who's a military historian mm. at the University of the Fraser Valley, who's focused on Indigenous people in World War II. Yeah. And I think that all of these are so complicated. Can you tell us a little bit more about those classes? Because it sounds like upper class, middle class, lower class, which we sometimes hear about in Canadian society. Mm -hmm. um, but this sounds like it's more based on like values, like the ability to understand your role. Like uh, if you were to compare it to like Christianity or something, you would say uh, the upper class has a really deep understanding of their, their Christian beliefs. Mm -hmm. uh, in comparison, it sounds like the upper class are well connected to their elders. They understand the stories. They understand the values. And the lower class doesn't. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Sure. Um, one of the things you'll notice is that the Smalath families are really interested in ensuring that their families have uh, ancestral names. Okay, because ancestral names is what connects you to the land, what connects you to your place. Uh, back when I was interviewing the late Agnes Kelly, she sadly passed away in 1988 and uh, only had like four days working with her. And I, you know, probably just got a drop in the bucket compared to what she to what she had. But anyway, she talks about ancestral names and she says that um, your ancestral name comes from one place and you can't take that name and move it anywhere. And she knew that that was happening back in, even in 1988, and it still happens today, where you have someone that has one name, and then all of a sudden you have number two, and number three, number four, and sometimes even number five. So you have five people sharing that one name. And But she said that never used to happen in the past. Everyone had their one one name, and it is a unique name. No one else, no one else had that name. And she said, attached to that name, at the place that you lived, was um, all your, everybody knew where you could fish, where you could hunt, where you could gather berries, stories you could tell, songs you could sing, and uh, all, which part of the longhouse you could live in, okay? Because we used to live in great big long one kilometer longhouses, right? And so that's the most important part, I think, is our ancestral name. And that's why you'll see a lot of people, you know, especially it seems like our, all our um, political leaders should all have ancestral names. That's my my perspective, you know, if they, they have enough respect, which is important in our society uh, to get elected, they should also they should also carry an ancestral name. 
uh, to the place that they that they come from. Right. Right. So that's one of the big parts of it. Um, we also have what we call Siam. Siam are part of the Smalath, uh, more of a traditional leader. And uh, I have to say, not necessarily when you get elected, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily make you Siam, right? Although it is a high, you still have to view them as a, as a, as a Siam, so we still refer to them as Siams, but in the traditional sense, um, Siams still remain Siam whether elected or not. So they could even still be uh, out there in a community and people will still be going to see them, you know, for their leadership, for their, you know, their advice and that sort of thing. And so they could still be a traditional Siam, but they don't necessarily belong or don't necessarily become part of the uh, part of the chief and council. So I still believe that that's still out there. There's still Siam out there. And of course, there are um, a lot of uh, today I see young people who are who I consider Siam who are in uh, who are in leadership roles, especially when you see that uh, they're the grandson of an important, uh, important uh, leader who, you know, played a big role in Stalo culture and history and Stalo uh, politics, right? So there's still some of those people that are that are there. Uh, so Smalath then, so talking about the access uh, to resources, right? So that was the main thing. So understanding Sa'aftamukh, okay? Sa'aftamukh meaning our land. That's what we refer to it as. We don't call it Stalo Tumukh. I mean, an outsider, a non-Stalo person could refer to it as Stalo Tumukh. So acknowledging that Stall, I mean, people of the river's land, right? But you and I and all our relatives, we need to refer to it as Sa'aftamukh because uh, when we refer to it as Sa'aftamukh, we're referring to it as our land. Sa'af means our, Tamukh is our, is our land. And as soon as you um, take ownership of something, and then that's where the stewardship comes in. And that's where that term, that's a big part of... Um, big part of our leadership it's a responsibility that our leadership carries and and i know there are leaders out there that fully accept that responsibility and all you need to do is look at the different um uh, web pages of the different uh, first nations throughout the fraser valley or the different tribal councils and different political organizations and you'll see this important statement in there and this statement actually um came from the late uh, tilly Gutierrez from chowthel uh, as a young girl she remembers uh, at her fishing camp up in Eam, which means lucky or strong. Um, she remembers uh, right behind, between her and Alan Gutierrez's uh, fishing camp, there was this place where the, the chiefs used to get together and meet. And back then, the main topic was to talk about the, the land question. Right now, today, we talk about it in, in terms of Aboriginal rights and title, but back then, it was all the land question. But before they carried on with the meeting, the first thing that someone did was got up and made the statement, and the statement in our language, and this is an important statement to everyone, if anyone who's Stalo, got to remember this statement. So that means this is our land, we have to take care of everything that belongs to us. Right, so that's a responsibility that we all have as, as Stalo. And so when you look at the first part of the statement, that is a statement of our Aboriginal rights and title. That's where we are saying, this is our land. And the second part of it is, of course, the stewardship. Now, the important thing that that struck with me back in hearing that in 1988, I'd only been working for three years at that point, and Tilly Gutierrez uh, um, uh, was the one that uh, shared it with us. And I remember thinking at that time, because I was just on a learning curve, and I remember thinking, wow, what are the chiefs talking about? 
So I know this is our land. So this is our land. But take care of everything that belongs to us. Well, what belongs to us? Right? And then so that was always at the back of my mind all those years that I was, and it's still at the back of my mind. I'm still learning. You never quit learning, right? I'm still learning more. And so that was always at the back of my mind uh, when I was studying the different things and trying to understand that. And so that pretty well is the theme of the tours that I do as well, Bad Rock Tours, uh, is that I try to share with everyone different aspects of Stala culture and history that's important to us, but and is still out there and that we need to take care of it, right? We have an obligation to take care of that thing, right? So so that's a really a reflection of um, how the Smalaf are as well, right? When you look at uh, all the places, because another thing, important thing is if you don't use a place, you're not, you're not taking care of it. The really important element of owning a place is taking care of it, right? And so you have to you have to take care of that thing. You have to take care of your hunting ground. You have to take care of your berry picking ground. If you're not going up there, you're not using it because as soon as you use it, you actually take care of it, right? And that's what the late uh, Elizabeth Hurling was really uh, really emphasized the importance of that because we're because again, what it comes back to is two things. There's what we call in our language. Um, Shwakwiam and Squalqual are two main aspects of our oral history. There's a third one that's got to do with um, scolding that Tilly Terrace talks about, but the two main ones are Shwakwiam and Squalqual. And the Squalqual is all about your family history, right? Um, and that's where that whole thing of uh, where where did your uh, parents, where were they born? Your grandparents, where were they born? Where did they live? Where did they go to school? Uh, where did they fish? Where did they hunt? Where did they gather, gather berries? All those things are your squalqual. And Elizabeth Herling said that full-blooded brothers and sisters share the same squalqual. And she said where it becomes important is that once you learn through your squalqual where your ancestors fished or hunted or gathered berries, you have an obligation to go out there and do that. And that's why today many of us do that. Many of us fish where our ancestors fished or hunt where they hunted, uh, you know, because we end up going out with our grandmother or going out with our grandfather or an uncle or an aunt to these places. And so we continue, continue to use them. And by, by and she said the, the obligation is that once you get out there and start using them, you have to start taking care of them as well. And just by using them, that means you're taking care of it as well. Right. One of the things that I want to get your perspective on is this challenge that we face right now, because um, pipelines are always in the news. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this this tough dichotomy I feel like Indigenous people are in where we bring in a pipeline, we feel like we're destroying our land. Yes. We don't bring in the pipeline. We live in severe amounts of poverty in many yeah. communities. And then crime comes from that poverty. Mm -hmm. And so the conversation feels so unfair because to me, it feels like we have to develop so that we can start to think longer term. Because I look at some of the decisions um, uh, chief and council make across BC mm -hmm. and it seems so short-sighted. It seems so limited in their ability to say, look, seven generations forward. Mm -hmm. And it's because they're facing poverty. They're struggling. They don't have all the resources they need to be able to think long-term and, and plan and protect their lands the way they want to. Uh, but there's this dichotomy. What are your What are your thoughts on how do we kind of move about this, this tough terrain? Well, I think the, now the way things are looking now, they're recognizing Aboriginal rights and title. And when you look at the way the first pipeline went through, they weren't, right? You look in the first BC Hydro, power lines went through, they weren't, right? And uh, back then, there was just all about Indian reserves, 
And, you know, some of the elders, some of the chiefs have a perspective where they say when they were planning that power line or planning that pipeline, they probably looked at the map and looked at where all the Indian reserves were and made sure that their pipeline or power line went through all the Indian reserves because they knew it was easy for them to get a, get that land, whereas everywhere else they had to pay. They had to pay for that land, right? Right. And, um, you know, we need to take care of our take care of our land. And it almost seems like, you know, that pipeline is going through. Uh, is what I can see anyways, it's it's going through. Right in my own community, um, you know, I, I voted no, I voted against it. Uh, but um we ended up going with it. Now we have this uh, thing where and a lot of our a lot of our community members are, are are employed, you know, working working on working on the pipeline. Yeah. You know, so um, and it seems all the communities that are within that line, there's a lot of benefits. They actually sign a benefit agreement where they're actually getting, you know, work uh, work that's being done, and also getting funding that provides them with other work that's important to the to the community as well. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the important part is they are recognizing, you know, our Aboriginal rights and title, uh, accommodating us, you know, to give us give us jobs and uh, that sort of thing as well. So it's a uh, but and we have to take care of it, and then we have, and by being involved in it, we have our own rules in place about preservation of our land, preservation of our of our culture, conservation of our fish, conservation of our animals. Uh, all you know, all those things are there, and, and so by involving us, we ensure that that is done as well. You know, so the same 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 as the uh, the different biologists and other archaeologists who do that. But it's important that we be right there. Because it is our land, and we need to take care of it, right? And so I think if we get involved with it, we can actually we actually take care of it and ensure that uh, that it is taken care of. Yeah, it makes me think of when you talk about the land acknowledgement and having that idea of sustainability and taking care of the environment of what Carolyn Victor did with Sham First Nation of removing all of the blackberries because they're an invasive species, mm -hmm. putting back in the native species, and instead of putting in more rock, uh, returning and trying to help it uh, grow back so that there's um, ecosystems for the salmon and the chum to be able to stay and uh, get out of the fast-moving river. Mm -hmm. And her willingness to do that and take on the Aboriginal rights and title work that she did, it was all out of her own willingness to do and belief that this was good work that needed to be done. And that gives me a lot of hope when I see Indigenous people just doing it. She wasn't looking for recognition. She was just doing good work that I think makes such a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we need more people like Carrie Lynn and, and others. There's a lot of other people out there that I can see younger people, younger than, than, than myself, uh, that are doing a lot of really good work out there. And I really, you know, my hands go up to quite a few of those people that do that, such as Carrie Lynn. And I believe she's related to me as well. Yeah. You know, I'm supposed to be related to the Victor family from Chiang, but I'm not sure how. I've been trying to find out how. And I'm even trying to find my connection to the Chiang, because actually my great-grandmother, um, so my grandfather, Antoine, who is a member of the Boston Bar Band, his mother was actually from Chiam, so still looking for that connection. Not sure which family I'm related to. Could be Carrie Lynn's family, could be a different family through that line. But uh, through my grandmother's line on my mother's side, I'm supposed to be related to the Victors. We fished side by side, our families fished side by side up at a place called uh, Calalicto, where Carrie Lynn has her dry rack right now. Just upriver of that is where my great-grandfather uh, had a dry rack. And 
they're supposed to be closely related to Fischer's society. Can you tell us more about that? Why does it matter so much? Because you see this in um, someone who grew up grew up uh, disconnected from my culture in many ways. Um, when people ask, "What's your last name? What's your What's your mother's name? What's your grandmother's mm-hmm. name?" Uh, they go up the lineage to figure out uh, who I am. Yeah. Can you, for individuals who might not have that background or have that relationship, can you explain why that's so important to Indigenous people? Uh, mainly because um, it's a way of making a connection to you. And so the elders need to know, like, well, what's your name? Who's your parents? And who's your grandparents? And sometimes even who's your great-grandparents, right? And so it's a protocol that we have. So if you ever introduce yourself, especially to an elder, you should always say who your parents are. Say, my parents are so-and-so. And I'll say who your grandparents are uh, because that creates that connection because then they'll know who you are, and then they'll probably know that you're your relative, right? Um, I know in our language they say that um, CA means friend, but CA also means friend and uh, relative. I interviewed um, the late Harry Stewart from from SQUA, and uh, when I told him who my grandfather was, and I remember he was laying down on uh, having a nap on his sofa and was kind of talking to me like that, you know, and, and I mentioned uh, who my grandparents were, and he turned and looks at me and goes, you're my CA. And I went, yeah, and I, th- I thought at that time it just meant friend. And he said, Sieya doesn't just mean friend. He says, Sieya means uh, relative. Right. You're my relative. So he knew that I was related to him, which I, which I am. Um, you know, the G- Stewart family genealogy goes back to uh, to Chowsel and goes back up to Yale. That's why the Stewarts fish up there in Yale as well. Right, because you think of like um, when we talk in modern times, it's like, what do you do? Uh, it has nothing to do with your connection with anybody else. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there are certain areas where uh, Canadian culture or Western culture can learn a lot from Indigenous culture. Uh, one of the areas that I always like to talk about is the value we place on elders, because that does not seem to exist in Canadian or Western mm-hmm. culture. Um, you look at how the COVID-19 pandemic played out. Well, the hardest hit were seniors' homes, and it seemed like they were not getting the care that they deserved, particularly in Ontario. And so I think of that, and I think of the elders' lodge we have here in the Fraser mm-hmm. Valley, and the the value I saw even clients as a native court worker when an elder would come in, the humility of putting down their head, um, closing their mouth and opening their ears and being willing to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, these are such valuable things, I think, that um, others can learn from Indigenous culture. And I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah. Uh, well, the other thing, too, is the, um, I think just the losing sight of the younger people. And um, it's because that's what I do now. That's how I am today. I mean, I'm 65 years old now, right? So, but I remember interviewing the late uh, South Almuthuk or P- Peter Dennis Peters, and my, actually my uncle, because his his father and my grandfather were were, um, were brothers. But anyways, um, this one day he was saying, "Yeah, I don't know any of the young ones anymore." You know, we were at a gathering and there's all these people, kids running around and younger people there, and he says, "Yeah, I don't know any of them." He said, I have to ask them who their who their parents are or who their grandparents are in order to know them. And that's what I've noticed today. That's how I am. I'll see these young kids, or I might even remember them as being little little people, and then all of a sudden they're full-grown adults, you know, getting married, having children, and that sort of thing. I'm always uh, shocked when I, when I meet people and realize that, uh, you know, they're in their 40s or 50s now, whereas in my mind they're always forever young to me, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, same thing. I, I, I have to, you know, ask them, you know, who's your parents, who's your grandparents, and and to me, it's the uh, coolest thing actually to make connection to someone, 
when you find out that they're related to you, you know, and especially you want to share with them uh, what their family history is all about, because there's a lot of things, a lot of things to be proud of once you find out who your family history is and who your leaders were in the past and that sort of thing, right? Your family connections. Okay, well, let's give that a try then. Can you uh, perhaps do that for me? Can you tell me a little bit about, uh, you said that you uh, are potentially from Chihuahua. I am a member of Chihuahua First Nation. Yeah. I am not as well connected as I'd like to be. Um, I don't know, I know a few Halklamelem words, but I don't know them well. Um, okay. Can you tell tell me about my own family lineage? Sure. First of all, it's uh, Chihuahua, not Chihuahua. I mean, there are some people that stay, still say Chihuahua. And um, I remember the late uh, Grand Chief Peter Dennis Peters, Tilly Gutierrez, Alan Gutierrez, um, another, a number of others saying, yeah, we actually had a meeting to, to determine what it is, what is the proper pronunciation. And he said, we told them it's Chihuahua, but they still say Chihuahua. And I still hear, you know, there's a, there's a person that works for them that still says Chihuahua and says, and she also talks about that meeting. Somehow they got it wrong, right? And so it's supposed to be Chawathal. But uh, anyways, and, then, and the other thing is, I think it also goes back to how the Bering Strait theory, right? Which I call the BS theory, right? And they say that we came across, across the Bering Strait. And um, so a lot of people, and I think one of my cousins, she passed away. She said, well, the reason I don't like to say Chawathal is because it sounds like a Chinese word. Chow, you know, so that was one of the one of the reasons that she had given me, uh, and it's so it's it's uh, Chowathal, not uh, Chowathal. Okay, so let's go back to to your family then. So our family, you have a huge family, uh, and you only look at one part of it. And in order to understand your full family connections throughout the territory, you need to do a, what is called a pedigree chart. So the pedigree chart will show where you are. It'll show your parents show your parents' parents, your parents' parents' parents, so your great-grandparents, and also your great-great-grandparents. And in order to do a full tree, you need a full tree that'll go the probably the width of the hall at Chowthal. You'll have eight of them, and that'll show your connection in all those, all those families, right? And I think a lot of people don't realize, they think that you can put your genealogy on one sheet and that's it. But no, you got to do a whole bunch of sheets. You might be able to do a, one sheet just for your your mother and father and their kids and grandkids. Maybe you could get that on one sheet. But once you start going above that, then you can't. It becomes uh, three-dimensional. Right. Okay. So our connection is um, uh, through your mother, uh, who is my uh, second cousin. Right. So uh, her mother... Um, or, no, she, your mother's my third cousin. Her mother is second cousins. So your grandmother is second cousins with uh, with uh, my mother. So when you go back, you go back to uh, Captain Charlie's family. So Captain Charlie's a huge, huge family. Okay, so tell you a little bit about Captain Charlie first. So Captain Charlie was from uh, Eslau. Eslau, uh, now known as IR-21, um, and also referred to as the Millican site by archaeologists. Uh, that's where Captain Charlie was from. He was born there, but he moved down. Okay, and uh, his father was uh, Sakhiltil. And so Captain Charlie's name is Sakhil. His father was Sakhiltil. And back in 1986 or 87, somewhere back then, we were doing an um, archaeology tour. We walked from Spuzzum on the CNR tracks all the way down to Hope. It took us we camped two nights, so three days, 
And we actually found the cemetery there at IR-21 at Eslau. And I remember taking photographs and writing down in my notes the name that is on that cross. And at that time, I didn't know anything about my connection to that place. Right. And so later on, I found out, yeah, that was actually my great-great-great-grandfather's name was uh, Sakhiltal. So he came from there, and that's where he's buried. But Captain Charlie moved from there, who was also was Sakhil, moved from there and moved down, moved down river, and had a big family. So his first wife was actually um, from uh, Skokale, and that's why if you talk to people, I have a number of elders, uh, the, the late uh, C.M. Chester, Frank Malloway, come up to me and because I told him about my family tree, and then he goes, oh, that short Jack, little Jack, is your relative. I said, yeah, and he said, oh. Same with uh, Jeff Point. He came up to me and said the same thing. He said, yeah, we often wondered who, who that guy was. We all knew him as short Jack or little Jack Charlie. And as my great-great-grandfather, Captain Charlie, who married a woman from Skalkale and had that one, one son, right? And then uh, his wife died. So then Captain Charlie got with the second second wife was from Iwawas. And and then he ended up living in Hope at the campsite. So if you ever go to the Teltit campsite, well, it wasn't a campsite back then. It was turned into a campsite in 76 or something like that. But it was it's an old village site, old village site of Tikals, right? And if you go to uh, campsite number 12, because they have numbers on the campsites, and you'll see the pit house there, that is your great, great, great-grandfather's pit house. That's where Captain Charlie lived. So that was his second second wife. And she had died. And actually, if you ever read um, Bishop Hill's journal, Bishop Hill was the Anglican uh, missionary who was heading up to Lytton to establish the Anglican church up there in Lytton. And he actually stopped at Calls or in Hope uh, to, to camp before, before he carried on. And in his journal, if you or his diary, if you read it, you'll see he actually met Sachel, our, our my great great grandfather, your great 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 grandfather, and he talks about him. Oh, he's a grizzly bear hunter, and he was up uh, up the silver silver Skagit area uh, hunting grizzly bear. Got caught by a grizzly bear, and got chewed and bit up and cut in that, and took him twelve to fourteen days to crawl out of there, back to his home there at at the uh, Telty campsite. And I guess when he got there, he was hoping that his um, his wife was going to nurse him back to health. But actually, when he got there, his wife and his son from that wife were both on their deathbeds. Not sure what they had, but they both died. And so that's how he married our great-great, well, my great-great-grandmother. So she'd be your great-great-great-grandmother, Marianne, from Yale. And if you go up to Yale, you go down Toll Road, uh, there's a creek there, there's Yale Creek, and then just upstream a little bit, there's another creek, and that's actually called Marianne Creek, and that's named after our our ancestor, Marianne, who married uh, Captain Charlie. Right. Yeah, so that's where the, that connection comes in. And then he started having uh, children, uh, right from uh, Jimmy Charlie, uh, Susan, who's my great-grandmother, uh, and then Baptist Pat Charlie, who's your great-great-grandfather, and then a whole bunch of others. All the way, all the way down uh, to Pat Charlie, who's the uh, the youngest son from uh, from Yale, and so if you look at that genealogy, then we have relatives all the way down to uh, North Vancouver, even into uh, over to um, the Cowichan area, 
and all all the way up the interior up in Boston Bar, even up uh, up into the Okanagan. We have relatives up there as well because of that huge uh, huge uh, family tree. But the cool thing about uh, Captain Charlie and his father, they were grizzly bear hunters. Okay, and this is something that would appear on our house posts. Okay, because in the past we had um, longhouses, and remember I talked about how there's Malath, Setechem, and Squiath. So in the past we had these huge longhouses. You read Simon Fraser's journal; he talks about coming across a one-kilometer-long longhouse at Matsky, or Mathaqui is the proper pronunciation of it. And if you ever go to um, Fort Langley National Historic Site, they have a painting in there that was done by James Alden. James Alden did incredible numbers of, uh, of paintings, uh, but he did a painting of uh, Fort Langley in 1864. The focus was the fort. So nice and clear painting of the fort, but in the background, he couldn't help but paint the Kwantlen village on the other side of the river. And if you look closely at it, you can see it's a great big longhouse. And we had what's called the shed roof longhouse with a high front and a low back, right? And one one kilometer long. We never had the gabled gabled roof like like the present longhouses. Okay. Right. Um, so then uh, Captain Charlie then was a grizzly bear hunter. And his father was as well. And how they hunted grizzly bear was they had these bones made out of the front legs of a deer. So one inch in diameter. And on the bottom, it had a little notch, and the top went to a point. And it had a, had a handle on it, and, uh, or a buckskin handle, right? piece of buckskin strap lapped around there, and that's what they used as a handle. Uh, one of my cousins, Laura, just uh, uh, from Chehalis, that actually lives up in uh, Siwali now, but uh, she shared with me just not too long ago, we were talking about that, and she said that her mother had talked about that and said that... Um, they actually used to use uh, woven cherry bark as handles on, on those bones as well. So that's pretty cool to find that out. But how do you kill a grizzly bear with one of those bones? Okay, because uh, Sakhil is supposed to have had three of them, according to Patrick Charlie. You can actually read about this in a book called The Upper Stalo uh, by Wilson Duff. And if you go to his field notes, there's a whole bunch more information in the field notes about it. Um, so he had three of them. One was about eight inches long, approximately. Another one about nine inches long. Another one about 10 inches long. Okay, so his name, Sakhil, means shuffling his feet, right? So what he would do is approach a grizzly bear and um, start dancing around the bear, shuffling his feet. And what he wanted the grizzly bear to do is to stand up on his hind legs. And he wanted the grizzly bear to drop down on his front paws and attack with his mouth. Because as you know, the grizzly bear claws, as long as your finger, and one swipe, they can rip your guts out, right? So he didn't want the grizzly bear to attack with his claws. So once he got the grizzly bear to stand up, and then he pretended to quit moving, right? Feign uh, movement uh, or feign to stop, and then the grizzly bear would drop down on his front paws and attack with his mouth open. Then depending on the size of the grizzly bear, he'd take one of those bones, shove the bone into the grizzly bear's mouth, and the notch on the bottom locked in the back of the tongue, then he tipped the point back like that. When the grizzly bear closed his mouth, the point went right into his brain and killed it instantly. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So a lot, I remember um, when I was first started telling that story after the elders had shared with me, like the Grand Chief Peter, Dennis Peters, uh, Ralph George, Bill Pat Charlie, they all knew about that, that history. And, you know, so it took different aspects from from uh, each of them about uh, about that. And one of them talked about how, the grizzly bear or the the hunter would actually um, carry a club as well to to 
hit the bear on the head to make sure that the point penetrated into the brain. But I was telling these stories at the schools too. And I remember I was in a grade six or a grade seven class and I told the story. And uh, I remember one of the students, a young boy came up to me and uh, he thought he was going to get me to confide in him that I made the story up, right? Because I guess he thought it was a made up story. It's hard to believe, right? So he came up to me and said, you made that story up, didn't you? I said, no, no, I didn't. I said, my great, great grandfather killed Grizzly Bear that way. Right. And so I was mentioning this uh, to Vincent Harper. Vincent Harper's uh, now the, I think he's the head of DFO in Saskatchewan, but he was a biologist and an archaeologist. And he was involved with the, uh, the um, uh, what do you call it, the skeleton collection in, uh, mammal skeleton collection at the University of Saskatchewan. And uh, he knew that UBC also had skeletons. So he said, well, let's go down, take a look at a grizzly bear skull, see where the brain cavity is, and see. Is it possible to kill a grizzly bear with one of those bones? So we went down there, and sure enough, uh, looking at a grizzly bear's skull, at the back of the throat is where the brain cavity is. The only thing that separates the throat from the brain is a thin bone about the thickness of a credit card, and it's kind of shaped like a star, like that. So it points up here, points here, and there's actually gaps in the four corners. So when you shoved that bone in, it had a lock on the back of the tongue, you had to tip it back so that it goes into the brain, right? And so we said, well, what happens if you don't tip it back? Like the elders, you know, really emphasize tipping it back. And so we looked and said, okay, if you don't tip it back, shove it on the front of the tongue, it goes into the nostril area. Well, if it just goes into the nostril area, you have an angry bear, not a dead bear, right? Yeah. So you got to make sure that it's tipped back and make sure that it goes into the brain and kills it. So I think it was uh, Ralph that was saying that some of them carried a club and would club them on the head. Uh, to make sure that the bone penetrated because you have to go through that little thin bone right and get into the brain and so some of them carried some of them some of them didn't uh self almathic grand chief peter Dennis peters he didn't give a name as to who it was but uh, he said there's a story about one of those grizzly bear hunters who had an enemy and the enemy got a hold of his bones and took the buxton strap off and used the saw cut it and then put the strap back on and so i guess when he went hunting he never came back because when he shoved the bone in it broke and then the bear, grizzly bear, killed him. So yeah, I imagine that you'd lose quite a few hunters to learn that trick. <laughs> yeah, and actually, if you go down to uh, the Museum of Anthropology, there's a house post down there that captures the same sort of thing. Although they don't, I don't know why they don't talk about that on that on a on that display, but it's an actual house post from Musqueam, and I believe that grizzly grizzly bear hunter from there. So there's a family in Musqueam whose ancestry has, you know and has carved that on their house post to show which part of the longhouse that they live in when they had their longhouse, right? So all the descendants of that hunter would live in that section of the longhouse. Um, but if you go down there, you'll notice it's uh, a man standing with his legs spread and his arms up like this. You look in one hand, you can see those hammer stones, right? So like a club. So he's got a hammer stone that goes up to, you know, the point and wide on the bottom. Some people call them grinders. He has one of those in his hand. And then in his other hand, you see what looks like a knife. But it's not a knife because when you look close at it, you'll go, well, why does it have a point coming out? And there's still something else sticking out there because it's one of those grizzly bear bones. Right. right? It's not a knife. It's not a knife that has a handle and a long blade. That's the kind of knives we use today. We never even had those kind of knives in the past, right? We yeah. have different types of knives. And anyways, so that's what that portrays because you look on top of it, there's a bear coming out of a cave, 
right? So he's waiting for the bear to come out of hibernation, and then he's going to use that method to to kill that bear. Yeah. So that's what that's about, you know. So that would be something that you know a chowso at a longhouse. We should have a carving of that man, you know, of uh, Captain Charlie. Uh, grizzly bear hunter yeah. right that is so interesting and i think valuable for us to be able to go through these stories and learn about that kind of leadership and the knowledge that you get passed on from elders to better understand how these systems functioned because i think that one of the huge errors you see western culture make is they they seem to like that kid underestimate mm. the culture, underestimate uh, the sophistication of what was taking place. It's so easy if you're thinking of indigenous people as uh, like the term they used was like savage. Mm -hmm. It's easy to kind of underestimate and think that we were out there with no tools or understanding. Mm -hmm. And I think the challenge is, is that we come from an oral tradition. Mm -hmm. And so you can't go read a book on our strategies because we didn't really have that book. Mm -hmm. We had communication. Um, I'm hoping you can tell us about the environment because um, I don't know if you know who uh, John Burroughs is, but he's mm -hmm. a researcher at uh, the University of Victoria, um, a law professor, and he's working to kind of give oral traditions the respect I think they deserve. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how um, indigenous laws are literally lit written on the land because you have a story about, um, you have a story particularly, and perhaps you can share it now, of the medicine man and the idea that the medicine man was a selfish individual and acted for himself and his family. And then he was turned to stone. And I think of that story and I think of um, like what the morals of that story is. And it's if you act selfishly, if you live selfishly, um, you're not going to move forward in your life. You're not going to build better connections with your community, with your family, with other stakeholders uh, in society. And then um, I think of like the application of that as Carrie Lynn Victor, because she talked about how she's been working on creating these murals and this artwork. And she basically says that, okay, so when I'm doing it for business purposes, when I'm doing it for schools in the district, I charge for that. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to my community, when it comes to um, sharing this with my family, um, if it's for a funeral, if it's for a wedding, I don't charge for that. That is uh, that my gift needs to serve the community. And so I can't charge for that. It's my role to give back in that way. I see that as like the application of that story in action. And so perhaps you can tell the story far better than I can um, and go through some of these moral stories. Okay. Um, this all comes back to what we call Shwokyam. So remember I talked a little bit about Squelkwal, so the story about Sakhil and Sakhil tell that's part of your, your Squelkwal. Now Shwokyam is also an important part of our oral history. So Shwokyam, when you look at that word in our language, Shwokyam has two meanings. First of all, Shwokyam is a time period, a time period where the elders say the world is mixed up. They said animals and people could talk to each other, animals and people could transform from one another. There are a lot of bad Indian doctors, a lot of bad warriors, a lot of resources that we didn't have, a lot of resources that were in unusable forms. Those are the things that was in that mixed up world. The second meaning of Shohuam is the stories from that time period and the stories of Chachals, the Transformers. So Chachals are the, the three bear brothers and the bear sisters. So the four children of uh, Black Bear and uh, uh, red-headed woodpecker. <clears throat> they lived up at the head of uh, Harrison Lake. So this is a story that George Chehalis ch shares through uh, Franz Boas, one of the early um, anthropologists. And he says that uh, red red-headed woodpecker lived in the mountains above what's now Port Douglas. And Port Douglas is actually part of our traditional territory. Uh, lived up in the mountains there. And um, 
He had two wives, one was black bear, one was grizzly bear. Four children with black bear, no children with grizzly bear. Uh, grizzly bear got jealous, so they got into quarrel about something, and she ended up killing her husband, red-headed woodpecker. And I know it's kind of gory, and people don't like that part of the story, but I can't change it. That's what happened. And in the in when grizzly bear was killing her husband, somehow she herself was killed as well. So it left black bear as a widow, left the four children as orphans. So those four children then were given special powers and given responsibility to travel through the land to make the world right. Okay, so they started there at the head of uh, Harrison Lake, made their way down to the Fraser River, traveled up to the sunrise, traveled to the sky to the sunset, then traveled back up river again to the sunrise and were never, never seen again. And that's why today, if you ever read um, Simon Fraser's journal, our ancestors, many of our ancestors actually thought that Simon Fraser was Cachel's returning because he looked so different. And he was coming from the sunrise. And so if you read his journal, he talks about our ancestors bringing him to the scratch marks for the story that I'm going to tell you, bringing him to the scratch marks and asking him if he did those scratch marks because they're thinking, is he Chachals, you know, returning? And he's the one that made those scratch marks, right? And he's the one that named that rock, Chachalimus, bad rock, right? So that's the first reference you get to that rock. He calls it the bad rock. And then, of course, later on, A.C. Anderson, a Hudson Bay Company employee, was actually looking for a trail, trying to establish a trail from Fort Kamloops to Fort Langley so that they could bring the furs from Fort Kamloops down to Fort Langley. And so he kept the journal, and he actually calls the village of Kathlaf, it's uh, uh, opposite uh, Lady Franklin Rock up there, or opposite Kelchelmus. <clears throat> he called that village of the of the Bad Rock. So that's where that term that's where that term comes from. Right. So I... there's many different stories in throughout their travels of all these uh, transformations. So this story about Helchelmus is one of, one of those stories. So Helchelmus then um, was an Indian doctor from the village of Chathlaf. Chathlaf meaning injured, injured people, and it's called that because, uh, first of all, the elders first told us it had, uh, had to do with a lot of people being transformed to stone in that area because when I do my bad rock tours, it takes me an hour and 10 minutes just to talk about that whole area, just stand in one spot hour and ten minutes to talk about everything that I can think of in that one one uh, one uh, location. Right. So Chalmers then came from Chathlath, and he was uh, an Indian doctor. But one of the things is that, uh, and I think that comes from this story as well, was that as an Indian doctor, um, he used his power to heal people, right? But then one of the things he started doing was he started charging people. So he's actually getting rich getting rich from his special powers that he had. And you're not allowed to do that. And that's why today, uh, if you ever hire a shlam or hehekels or anybody for spiritual work like that, you're not allowed to use the word hire. You go and ask them for for help. We don't use that word hire. And when you thank them, you're not allowed to use the word pay. You got to say, this is how we thank you. And you take advantage of another protocol that we have is that you can't turn things down, right? And and money is, is a really bad thing to actually give to someone, a spiritual person. It's better. And that's why you'll see those that know that will actually wrap the money inside a kerchief and they'll hand it to the person and then they'll say, this is how we thank you, right? And as a way to ensure that they don't turn it back and give it back to you, right? Yeah. Because uh, I've seen it happen where uh, someone's given some vehicles money and they just turn it right back. Like, oh, here, take this money and you know give it to your local youth group or something, because they're not allowed to take it, right? Yeah. So so Chalchalimus was using his power to get rich. 
So when Chachelsa traveled up there and he got there, just before he got there, he got to that turn and he had his tawa, his walking stick, and he shoved it into the ground and transformed it into stone. I'm not sure why he did that. And he continued and he got to this place there. And uh, he heard about Chelchelmas, so he started calling for Chelchelmas as he wanted to make an example of him. You know, let all you need doctors know you're not supposed to get rich off of your power, right? And so, but Chelchelmas was actually visiting. Uh, so this story comes from late Agnes Kelly, the version I'm telling you. First first uh, story, first time I heard it, many different versions of it. But anyways, um, uh, he called for Chelchelmas. Chelchelmas was actually up visiting his uh, brother, Sklau. Uh, beaver up there in Spuzzum, and there's stories of beaver up there in Spuzzum as well. But um, he called for him to come down and do battle, but Chelchelmas uh, refused, he wouldn't come down. And so Chelchelmas um, transformed Chelchelmas' sister, Sitcha'il, into stone. And so if you're ever there at that rock, at Techlis, where the scratch marks are, um, and you look downstream, you'll see the CNR tunnel and you see the island. So if you're in the summertime when the island is there, the big gravel bar, in between the gravel bar and the other side of the river, you'll see a, the water kind of boiling over something. Well, that's that's uh, that's such eel. So once Chelchelmas found out that a sister was transformed into stone, he came down through a tunnel. And that's another thing, important part of uh, um, tunnels. It's something that's mentioned in the, in the book that uh, Keith Carlson did. But anyways, he came down through this tunnel. And then he crossed over the river, walked down, sat on this rock. It's called the Stletzel. It means the seat. That's where he's the seat that he took. He sat there, and Chechel uh, sat on the other side, on the right side of the river, right where the end of Toll Road is. There, he sat there, and they started doing battle with each other. And at one point, and oh, every time Chechel used his power, he put a scratch in the rock. So if you go there, you can see the name of that. Places Thachlis means gritting his teeth because that's where he sat. When he sat there, his teeth was gritting like this because he was using his power against Chelchelmas. So you can see where he sat, depression where his, where his rump was, and you can see the depression in the side where his legs are dangling over the edge. And every time he used his power, he put a scratch in the rock. So you can see scratches from his right hand, scratches from his left hand. At one point, he cast a thunderbolt across, across to Chelchelmas. Thunderbolt went right into the rock. It missed Chelchelmas and went into the rock. And so, if you ever go up there, you look across the river, you can see this vein of quartz rock. It's almost a meter wide, a little bit less than a meter. Uh, probably, I don't know, about uh, 25 meters, 30 meters long. And that's the thunderbolt that went into the rock. Eventually, Chelchelmas won the battle and transformed Chelchelmas into that stone. And that's what we call Lady Franklin Rock today. Right. So, that's, we still call it Chelchelmas. And Chilchelmus had a third eye. He had three eyes. Some elders say he had it on his forehead. Some elders said he had it on his neck. But either way, he's supposed to have had uh, three eyes. And so when he was transformed into that rock, his third eye was also transformed into stone as well. And we are not, as Stala people, we are not allowed to look at that eye. If we do, we can suffer from what in our language is called Chialis. Chialis means twist up and die. And so I've never looked for that eye. I've been on that side of the rock because it's on the opposite side of where the highway is. It's on the opposite side. It's supposed to be on the back there. And I've never looked for it. Never, never will. Uh, yeah, but anyways, it's supposed to be there. His third eye was transformed uh, into stone. So we still call that Chalchalimus. Of course, it's now called Lady Franklin Rock. And of course, it was the local priest that, uh, out of respect for Lady Franklin, who was looking for her uh, late husband who was lost in the Arctic. 
Uh, she actually came up on a steamboat from New Westminster up to Yale, and uh, oh, I can't remember the priest's name now, but he had to, 12 stall of people in a canoe with her, brought her up there, and actually had a banner. And a, a professor from UFV, oh, I can't remember her name, it's not coming up, but she actually did a report on it, so I got a lot of information from her. But they actually had a banner across there, and it was uh, actually called Lady Franklin Pass. So that actually the pass was Lady Franklin. But right. then with her research, she found that seven years after the name Lady Franklin Pass, people started calling it Lady Franklin Rock. So it actually supposed to be the pass that was Lady Franklin. Okay, I'm right. very interested in your thoughts on this. Um, <clears throat> I think that one of the errors that um, some Christians make is that they work too hard to try and make the stories that they have. Because like, I found it interesting that you said people don't like the story of... Uh, the woodpecker being killed by the grizzly bear mm. um, over that. And like, people don't like that yet. We're okay with the fact that Jesus Christ in their story mm-hmm. was um, put up, uh, starved for long periods of time, um, given like vinegar rather than regular food and tried to be tortured in one of the most heinous ways that they could during that period of time. And there's a moral story of that, that this person lived or, like the ultimate role model being sacrificed, mm-hmm. the ultimate person who sets an example in a positive way. Um, being put up to die. And I find it's valuable to try and like, it's not that you can't take it literally. It's that there's value in just looking at the morality of the story mm-hmm. and tied in with these stories. Um, the detail that you gave in terms of like the scratch marks and the dent in that, that's excellent geography if you're mm-hmm. without maps. And I think that many people listening to this might go, well, did that really happen? How would we know that that happened? Like they get lost mm-hmm. in the, what did, did, can we prove this happened? And it's like, that's, don't look there. First look at how valuable this would be for people mm-hmm. who are commuting all throughout the land from Musqueam all the way to Yale, all the way back and forth through mm-hmm. all these communities. It would be so valuable to be able to, if you don't have Google Maps, how do you figure out where mm-hmm. you are? Well, you can look for these scratch marks. You can look for the scratch yeah. in this mountain. You can look at all of these different details that you've outlined in this to understand where you are in your geography. And you can retell this story while you're walking to learn a moral story like you would if you were reading the Bible, um, while also figuring out your geography. And this is where Jonathan Burroughs argues that this is our laws literally being written Mm -hmm. on the land, is that you understand where you are and how to act through the story. And I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, there's, well, I think we also have to accept that there's two different paradigms that we live in, and we can't uh, use our own paradigms to measure People, other people's beliefs or their perspectives on, on or their worldview to take things out of our paradigm to try to measure whether or not this really happened, right? So Western society will never be able to prove that. They can never, you know, they might be able to say, oh, no, that never happened, right? But according to us, it happened. It's real, right? Because I remember when I started this job, um, because I was raised in Western society, I only knew English. Um, you know, my my dad spoke Nakatmukts and my mother spoke uh, Helkmelem, but um, because they're two different languages, I learned uh, just the um, English, right? So, uh, so these two different uh, paradigms. But we also have to recognize that in our our view, these stories really happened. And I remember the first time that really struck me was again with uh, you know uh, uh, South Almathic Grand Chief Peter Dennis Peters from Chawatha, and. Um, we just finished, I asked him, I was interviewing him and I asked him, can you tell Vishwakuyam in Helkmelem, like completely in Helkmelem, I want to record it. And then after you finished, translate it, give us it in English. 
So he told the story, and he always liked to laugh. He always put his head back when he laughed, right? And really fun, funny uh, to uh, to listen to his story. So, anyways, he told a story about uh, beaver and frog. It's a love story that happened up in Spasm. And so he told it in Health Mail. He's laughing and laughing as he's telling. And of course, I didn't understand it, so I didn't know what was funny. I had to wait until they told the English part. Then we told the English part of the story. Yeah, then I started laughing as well. But I'll never forget, because we were both laughing so hard, and all of a sudden, he just quit laughing, and he got really serious, right? He, he, he got totally serious, and I'm, I'm going, oh, what's going on here? Like, why is he all of a sudden not laughing? So I thought, oh, I better quit laughing too. So I did. I quit laughing. And then he goes, you know what, Sonny? I said, what's that? He said, these stories may seem like they're funny, but they're real. They really happened. That's what he said. And I never forgot that. Because of the way he did that, the way he stopped laughing. And yeah, that always stuck in my mind. And later on, when I was talking about these stories again uh, with Yamalot, the late uh, Rosalind George, she almost said the exact same words. She used that same thing. She said, These stories are real. They really happened. Right? So, so now when I look at the stories, I have to believe in them. You know, they really happen. I take ownership of them. They're ours. We have to take responsibility. We have to believe in those stories. We can't cast them apart. You know, because like you said, like Burroughs said, it's, you know, there's a connection to our land. It's written on the land. What's also what um, Hulikwitil said as well. When we were actually looking for our constitution, we were actually trying to write a constitution and actually borrowing Western society's way of writing down a constitution, right? And then I remember uh, Hulikwitil, uh, Grand Chief Stephen Point, was the first one that came up with this idea. And, you know, I never thought of it all those years studying the Shokhyam. And then all of a sudden he comes and says it, right? And I'm just like, whoa, what a powerful statement. And that powerful statement is, he said, and I can't remember word for word, but he does, and we have it written down somewhere, but he actually said that um, our constitution is written on the land. And the stories of Chachels, that was him writing on the land, writing our constitution. So when you look at those stories then, and even if you look at the word Chachels, it comes from the word Chel. Chel is our word for writing. And they're chachels. So every time they did a story, a transformation, it was written on the land. So that story, so that chel chalamus, that was written on the land. The scratch marks from Tachlis, that's written on the land. Where he sat, where his legs dangled over. The thunderbolt that he sent across there. You know, Sitchiel, the sister that was transformed into stone. And when he was gritting his teeth, he was blowing. And so when you look at the water below there, and you can see the little... Little uh, little tiny waves that the wind makes as it blows across, that's supposed to be Chachals' breath. Because yeah. he's breathing like that and blowing and creating that wind. And that wind, what does it do? It's wind dries our salmon. The wind is important to our salmon. So even when we're drying our, our salmon, it's Chachals' breath that's drying our, our salmon. Right. Yeah. Can you tell us about, um, let's go through some of the traditions, because some people may have like a, like a surface level understanding of topics like uh, what is the Chiam Mountain? Because uh, we just get used to seeing it. It's a beautiful mountain. But what does that mean to Indigenous people? And what is the story behind uh, its name? Okay, so it's actually pronounced Chiam, but uh, Chiam means uh, wild strawberry. Uh, the name of the village, though, and it comes from the, and again, many names come from the natural geography or the natural resources in that area. And there's supposed to be a strawberry patch. They're still there because I've had people on my tour and 
they pointed out the area, and I've never gone to it, but they pointed out the area saying, yeah, the wild, big wild strawberry patch is still there. So the name is actually Luch Chiam, okay? And it's, and it's pronounced Chiam, like that, right? So Chiam, so Luch Chiam, right? So that's the proper name. But the elders, like the late uh, Amelia Douglas, um, Tilly Gutierrez, Agnes Kelly, they all talk about how during the course of, um, you know, the new new colonizers coming in here and, you know, taking away our language and there's a, this laziness that came into being. And then people started knocking the L off of that name. So it's supposed to be Luch Chiam. They took the L off and they started saying Chiam. So using just the XW, right? Because Luch means always. Chiam means wild strawberries. So always wild strawberries. Right. Okay. So then they took the L off and it became Chiam. And then eventually they took the XW off and just started saying Chiam. So when the Indian agents came, that's what they wrote, Chiam, it's like wild strawberry place. But it's supposed to be always wild strawberry place, right? Um, so that's the proper name. But it's the name of the strawberry patch, and it's the name of the village. It's not the name of the mountain, right? So cartographers that came in, um, sometimes, not all the time, they try to incorporate our names or try to incorporate our review into things, right? But and and a lot of times they tried, but they sometimes get it get it wrong, right? And so you actually look at um, Mount Chiam then, and they they have the uh, mountain behind there called Lady Peak. You know, uh, Dave Sheppy talks about how it almost seems like they like they knew the name of, of the village and uh, uh, they they kind of mixed it up and kind of moved things over because that Lady Peak is actually. So there's the wild starry patch, and then there's the lady, right? So if you look at it in out of order, so looking that way, there's starry patches down here, the lady here, but then they took it and shifted it over. And so they called this the wild starry patch, and the dog is, is called Lady Peak, right? So it seems like that's how they got mixed things up. It could be one explanation, right? Right. But um, anyway, so then, and this is a story from um, Amy Cooper. I'm glad I remembered her name this time. I was just talking to somebody the other day, and I couldn't even remember, I couldn't remember her name. But uh, late Amy Cooper from uh, Tawali. People say Suwali, but it's probably pronounced Tawali. Uh, she tells a story, and she says a long time ago, there was a woman who came from that area, from Pupquam or Chiam. I mean, both Pupquam and both Chiam, you know, claim, claim that story, uh, which is fine. But anyway, she, um, she came from there. Uh, she married a man down south, so she moved down there to be with her husband. And she had uh, six children with her husband, three sons and three daughters. And she decided to go back home. So she left her husband down there, and he was transformed into Mount Baker. Uh, she left her three sons down there, and there's different mountains, but the ones I'm familiar with, Mount Shasta, Mount Hood, and Mount uh, Shuksan. Uh, those were her three sons transformed into those mountains. She took her three daughters and her dog, and she went back back home. When she got back home up there, um, that's when she was transformed into that mountain. Okay, she was transformed into that mountain and given responsibility to watch over the river, watch over the people, as the stall of people, and watch over the salmon. And so that's why she's often referred to as the Mother Mountain. And that's what Amy, Mrs. Amy Cooper and others that share the story all say that she's the she's the Mother Mountain because Dan Milo shares the same story as well. The late Dan Milo from Scout Tale, and so. She was transformed into that mountain, 
her dog was transformed into the mountain behind her. So that's why from here, you look up there, you can see the nose, bridge of the nose, eyebrow, forehead, two little ears in the back of the neck. You can see the head of the dog. And if you look in the front, so the north side of the mountain, you can see two of her daughters, Seowat and Iowat. So she had three daughters, Seowat, Iowat, and Kamoftia. So the front front peak that you see, it's a sharp peak like that. That's Seowat. And right behind, so a little bit up and kind of behind her to the south, is more rounded peak. That's Iowat. So Seowat, Iowat, Shlishlake, and then way back, Squame the dog. Well, first the youngest daughter, Kamoftia. So in our language, the word for cry is Kham. See, it almost sounds like crying, right? Kham. Well, her name comes from crying because she's considered to be the crying daughter, the crying one. And why is she crying? Well, she was transformed into a little mountain down below. And sometimes you hear some of the younger Stala people thinking that it's Bridal Falls because it's a falls, right? And most people think, oh, it's a falls, it's Bridal Falls. But, And I, I thought that as well when I was first told the story of the Nagus Kelly. She said, no, no, it's not Bridal Falls. It's this next falls over here. And so if you ever go up there to, so you can't see it from here. You have to go up close. So if you go where the Popcom Overpass is, and you'll see Anderson Creek, that creek right there. And you follow that creek up, and you'll see that little peak. And you also see the waterfalls coming up. The waterfalls is really cut right in. So if you're driving by, you'll only see it for a split second, and then it disappears. You actually have to stop to actually see that waterfalls. But that waterfalls is the tears of the youngest daughter. So that little mountain that the waterfalls comes off, that's Kamathia. That's the crying daughter. The best perspective of it is to actually go to the old village, the old Popcom village, or Pepquam. It means the little, um, uh, what do you call those little... Um, puffballs, little mushrooms. That's what the pupquam has to do with. Because uh, Chief uh, James Murphy brought me out there and showed me the work that they had done to the cemetery and uh, all the whole, the archaeological site of the old pupquam village is all next to where that cemetery is. And I was, it was really cool because I went back there. Because when I do these tours, when you're actually on the highway, you can't see it, everything. I got to talk about it way back from Prest Road, talk about Seowat and Iowat and Tlethlake and the dog, and then all of a sudden it disappears, you can't see it anymore. But if you actually go right out to the Popkin Village, the old village site, look back to the mountain, you can see it all. Yeah, you can see Seawat, you can see Iowat, you can see Hlithlake, well, you can't see the dog, but then you can see the youngest daughter. You can actually see that little mountain with the waterfalls coming off of it. So, But even from the highway, it's hard to appreciate that, right? So, so you can actually make it out. But the best viewpoint is right from the old village. Right. And why is she crying? Oh, she's crying because um, she wanted to be up high with her older sisters. So her older sisters are way up high. They have a good view. They can see everything. They can see the whole valley. They can see the river, right? The same view, almost the same view as their mother. Uh, But she's crying. She wanted to be up there. So that's why that waterfalls is her tears. Interesting. And can you, uh, Andrew Victor described the Fraser River as like uh, the the connection between our land, like it's... uh, like the lifeline for our communities. It, it brings us all together. Uh, it would have been how indigenous people would have commuted back and forth. Yeah. It's like a highway, but it's also like a lifeline. Like it's like uh, the, the heart and soul of all the communities because we've relied on the fish and that brought us all together. And so can you tell us about uh, the Fraser River and perhaps some of uh, how you decide whose fishing areas are whose? The Fraser River is actually our word for distalo. Right, and Stalo uh, means river, and that's our name for it. Like Fraser comes from Simon Fraser, right? Yeah. The first European that traveled down there. Uh, but our name for it is Stalo, 
And we also call ourselves Stala, but we also call ourselves Squamish. And it's, this just came out not too, not too long before Rosaline uh, passed, passed away. And uh, there was some, I don't know, some people are kind of against it, but then for the most part, it seems like everybody's accepting it now. Um, because what had happened was Rosaline was at a, teaching the language at a community gathering. And uh, a young fellow, she said, because she told me about what had happened, right? And she said, this young guy got up and said, I am Stalo. And then she reminded him, she said, well, you're not just Stalo, you're also Hwalmuch. You know, so there's the two words. So we got to call ourselves Stalo, but we also have to remember we are Hwalmuch as well. So that they go hand in hand, right? And um, anyways, she went on to say that the young guy says, no, I'm just Stalo. And she says, no, you're Hwalmuch as well. And she said, what does the what does the river run on top of? It runs on top of the land, right? And she said, the reason we have to go by both is because it provides a connection to both. If we just call ourselves Stalo, then we're restricted to the river. Then we are just people of the river and that's it, right? She said, when we call ourselves Hwalmuch, then that detaches us to the land, right? So you have to look at that word then, Hwalmuch. What is our word for land? So remember, Sa'ath to Iqala. Temuch, Hwalmuch. You see that? So that, that little part in there, Much is in there. In there. It's kind of it has to do with like life or like that's what makes us people, right? Hwalmuch. And you only have to look at um, our neighbors. Okay, the Thompson people are Nakapmuch. See that? Yeah. Nakapmuch. Okay, people of the land. What about the Shushwap? Shushwap actually comes from the word Sakwapmuch. Much again, that attaches them to the land. What about the people from Lillooet up the other end of uh, Harrison Lake? They call themselves Sklat Imch. They go Imch rather than Mch, but it's the same thing. They're they're part of the land. They're connected. They're connected to that land. And so when we look at well, what are our connections to the land? Well, as Hwalmuch people, we come from that land. We go back to the land, right? So it is our belief that. Um, Everything that comes from the land comes from our ancestors because our ancestors, that's where they went. When they died, their physical remains go back and become part of the earth. And it's really strong in our communities now. You can actually see people aren't using fiberglass coffins or aren't using tin coffins anymore. Everybody understands that we are going back to the earth to be with our ancestors when we, when we pass away. And so now you see everybody doing a lot of, doing cedar coffins, right? Which is more traditional. I mean, there are many other traditional methods that we had of taking care of our loved ones, either putting them in trees or putting them in uh, in grave houses. But now we go back. We go back to that land. That's the important part of it. So that's why we call ourselves Falmuch and we call ourselves uh, Stalo at the same at the same time. Right. Can you tell us about the idea of seven generations, just because uh, you kind of just touched on it? Uh, seven generations comes from the, the, the word um, Tomiuk. Let me make sure I got that right. Because there's Tom Tomiuk and Tomiuk. Tom Tomiuk is the name of a uh, rock bluff at uh, Shoham. But Tomiuk means, uh, it's actually the word for, so place you. Now, when you say Tomiuk, you are talking about your great, 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 great. So seven generations back, you know, to your, so great, four, four greats, great, 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 great grandparents. You're also talking about your great, 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 great grandchildren. Same word. So why is that word, the word for your ancestors, and the word for your future generations, unborn ones. Why, why is that? 
Why? Because you have a responsibility. It, it doesn't come out and say it. Like if you read the word, it doesn't say, oh, that, that's your responsibility. You have to think about that and say, well, why? Why, do, is it, why is it the same word? Well, when you think about it, you have responsibilities to your ancestors seven generations back. What are your responsibilities to those ancestors? You have to remember their names. You have to carry on with their ancestral names. You're making sure that everybody's getting their ancestral names. You have to take care of their fishing spots. Remember, you got to go back to their fishing spot, go back to the berry picking site, all those different things. You have responsibilities. You have to be responsibility to take care of their perspective, their view of the world. You have to take responsibility for the Shwokuyam and for the Squalquil and our belief in Shuli, our belief in the Slalak and our belief in, you know, the little people, the Sa'almach, the Mimistich, all those different things. We have to take care of that, right? And why do we have to take care of it? Because we also have a responsibility to our seven generations into the future, or Tamiyuk from the future. We have the same responsibilities that we have to our ancestors. Those are also important to our future generations, seven generations in the future. So when you look at that word and just see what it means, it's like, oh, my great-great-great-great-grandfather. Oh, my great-great-great-great-grandchildren. But then you have to think, why is it the same word? So that's where it comes comes out, is the responsibility that you have to your past and the same responsibility you have to your future future generations. Call me a stachos, is our future generations. I feel like that is one thing that so many people need to start thinking about outside of uh, Indigenous culture, because that seems to be what's lacking, is the sense of responsibility to those past generations. And for myself, uh, Andrew Victor was the the first person to to bring up the idea of seven generations for me, and that's where mm-hmm. I, I first learned it. And it, uh, you you both told it brilliantly. Um, and I think of the individuals who survived residential schools, uh, the individuals who survived colonization, the individuals who, um, like Andrew talked about, like what were their prayers, what were their dreams for what their children would see, and mm-hmm. and how can you contribute to that? And I think it. We're in a time where the words depression, the words anxiety, they're commonplace. And people don't feel like they have a role to play. They don't know who they are. They don't Mm -hmm. know what they should be doing. And they don't know why they're going to this job that they hate and why they're paying for cars they don't care about. And what is the point of all of this? And when you describe it, when you talk about the idea that you have a relationship with your ancestors and you have an obligation to your your grandchildren, your family, it gives you meaning. Mm-hmm. And like life isn't always going to be easy. Life can, life's going to be tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's going to be certain times where you're overwhelmed. But understanding that you are carrying on the hopes and dreams of your descent of your ancestors and building a better future for your children and your grandchildren that's a meaningful life that's going to sustain you when things aren't going so well and that's what i feel like is so just missing from all the self-help books we see all the ideas that oh do whatever makes you happy like that's not that's not going to sustain you when Mm -hmm. things aren't going your way when life is tough and i feel like that story the idea of seven generations is so like if i could put that at at the top of the list of things that we need to educate people about, it's one of them because mm-hmm. it feels like people are so directionless in their career. Um, people don't have good relationships with their family. Um, like things aren't going well for so many people and they don't know what to do. And so they take a trip to Mexico and mm-hmm. they come back and that doesn't make anything better. Yeah. And there's just this feeling of emptiness that I feel yeah. like people carry around all day. And the idea that like for others, maybe your family fought in World War II against people who would have taken 
away your rights and freedoms. Mm -hmm. um, th there were people who have worked for your benefit that aren't here today to speak for you. And so you need to go learn their story. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like that's, that's just so important and something that I don't hear said enough outside of Indigenous culture, mm -hmm. outside of yourself and Andrew Victor, who've been the two people to really bring that up and, and being able to share that and make it like you have a responsibility and that's a good thing. Um, so I'm just interested in what you think. Yeah, and it's also can be viewed as, and I can't remember which elders, Agnes Kelly or, or Rosalind George, one of them talked about, explained this whole thing as a big hole in our heart. They said that we have a big hole in our heart, and that hole is created by all the different things that were taken away from us, right? The Residential School, the, the Indian Act, all these Fisheries Act, all these things took place, the Anti-Potlatch Law, all those things took things away from us and created this big hole in our hearts. And they're saying that what we need to do is refill that hole, relearn our culture, take our culture back, right? And take, you know, through the language and through things. And once we start taking those things back, it fills our fills that hole in our heart up again because that's who we are, because everything was lost. And so the more we take back, the better it will be, right? And we can only take it back a little bit at a time, right? Because uh, I remember in 1985 when I first started this job, and that was part of the things I was looking at. It was about first all the culture and history, and I was talking with uh, uh, uh Stan Green, and we were talking about that. You know, where's our culture? You know, you know, and he says he shared a story of what an experience he had. In his experience, he said that he was asking the same question when he was younger, and he went to one of his uh, one of his uh, elders, and he asked, "Where's our, where's our culture, and where's our history?" You know, and then the elder just waved his hand like this. He says, your culture and history is all around you. He says, it's just that you you have to you have to take it back. You only take back a little bit at a time. But each time you take a little bit back, it's going to make you stronger so that you can take more back. Right? And that's what I've seen over the course of the years. It's all these different things coming back, coming back to our people, making us stronger. I feel like my heart is, is whole. That's how I feel today is that I understand enough about our culture about our history you know i know what's going to happen to me when i when i die right and so i'm not worried about that right could be tomorrow could be anytime right but i'm, I'm not worried about that because i know where i'm going to be i know where i'm going to continue yeah that is absolutely beautiful um there's something that's been interesting to me it's to see the development of an understanding of like uh, psychedelics and that deeper relationship that so many cultures have uh, with with mushrooms, with uh, certain foods, with breathing habits. And I'm interested to hear any of your thoughts on that with Indigenous people. Um, did we have any connection with mushrooms? Like I know that lion's mane is incredibly good for your mind. Um, you have chaga that's like an antiviral. Um, did we have any connection, particularly, I like I've heard of elderberry and salmonberry. Did we have certain things that helped sustain us? Like Carrie Lynn Victor talked about being like a, um, practicing with medicines and certain um, foods and certain things that you can eat to, to, to help nourish you. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any stories to share on that? Well, um, not sure of any uh, hallucinogenic things, although I wondered about a plant and uh, actually the uh, Gerald Charlie, when I was talking with him about it, he suspected that that plant was hallucinogenic. But it is the late um, Edna Douglas that talked about this plant that used to be collected, and it's a it looks like a bean plant. So I'm not sure what it is. I've never looked into it, but it looks like it has little beans on it, 
and it has little purple flowers. And she said it used to grow, grow across the river from Chiam. And, and when people took up um, smoking tobacco, because we never smoked tobacco here in the past, but um, they would go over there and they'd gather that plant and dry it and, um, and uh, mix it in with their tobacco to extend their tobacco. Right. Yeah, but um, I don't know. Uh, she never talked about it as being, as being uh, hallucinogenic, so I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, do you have any other, because I know that Carrie Lynn was so interested in, um, I think it's uh, Devil's Club. Um, do you have any stories about um, the, the plants and the, the fauna that exist around here? Well, it seems like every one of them, uh, it comes comes back to a Shwokwiam story, right? So like cedar, that's one of the most important to us. Yeah. And this story comes from the late uh, birth of Peter, Knee George, from um, Seabird Island, because there's lots of birth of Peters is from Seabird, right? So you have to know the one that was the George before she married a Peters. And uh, she told a story about, uh, said that a long time ago, there's a very generous man. He is always helping and always giving to his people. And she said that when he died, where he was buried, a tree grew out of his grave. And it happened to be the cedar tree. And that is why the cedar tree is so generous to us, because that man was so generous and so helpful to his, to his people. And so his name was Chepe, and that's why the name of the cedar tree is Chepeyeft, right? Because his name is, is a part of, that, part of that word. And so if you look at the, the tree itself, so the trunk of the tree then, was uh, used to build our pit houses, build our longhouses. We carved our canoes out of it. The large old growth trees that are probably bigger than this room, we split living split planks off the living trees to cover cover our longhouses. Right then, if you look at the um, bark of the tree, uh, the bark was peeled, and we had our own protocols of conserving the tree. We never peeled all the bark off. It was only one part, so the tree would continue to live the same way that. We didn't have to knock the trees down to build our houses. We could take a plank off and the tree would continue living, right? right. Um, of course, all those old growth trees are logged out once the Western society came in. And uh, so then the bark of the tree then was also used to make clothing, to make twine. Uh, my understanding is the strongest twine is if you take fibers of cedar, fibers of stinging nettle, and fibers from a plant that's called dog bean. You mix those three together, it makes a super strong uh, twine, and that's the twine that we used to use uh, for for our dip nets, wow. right? And then the inner part of, and then of course the bark was made into clothing, and then the inner bark was actually scraped. So when you take the peel the bark off the tree, on the bark you can take a sharp object like a knife or something sharp, and just scrape the inside, and all these fine fibers come out, and you let that dry. It's very soft, very absorbent, and that's what our people use for diapers because we didn't have pampers, right? So we had that fine cedar bark and that was used uh, for diapers. And then, uh, of course, the uh, root itself was used as well. So when you, and again, protocols, you only take one root because you don't want to kill the tree because if you go to a cedar tree, you usually see four, sometimes you see more than four, but usually just four roots that come out. You can see the, the trunk of the tree like that comes out, right? And if you follow about a meter away from the tree, you dig down and the late many Peters from uh, from Peter's Road taught, taught, taught us this. And you dig down, and then you find that root. And it's anywhere from the width of your little finger to the width of your thumb. And it's long. It's about a meter, meter and a half long. And as soon as you get to the end of it, then it breaks off into these small little roots, and like really small roots that you can't do anything with. They're so, so tiny, and they're just hundreds of them that just go out. But it's that one piece that you're after. You take that out. Yeah, you take the you peel 
peel it, peel the peel the bark off of it, and then the inside you split it. And it's th those split cedar roots is what we use to make our cedar root baskets. And you have to be really good at it as well. It's um, like I said, the late Minnie Peters was teaching us how to do it. And I was trying it. I thought I was doing pretty good, you know. But you you have to take the knife, and when you do it, you're kind of vibrating the knife like this as you're going down, right? And it kind of peels it, and you go right from one end all the way to the other, and you have one nice long strip. But every once in a while, somehow I'd slip and I'd cut the root off, right? So then I just have a short piece when you actually want a long piece, right? Yeah. But when Minnie was doing it, she'd just go all the way to the end. And she showed us, demonstrated with one. Then we had this one because we dug a bunch of roots, and we had this one that's about this thick, really thick. And um, she grabs it, and she pulls it towards her. She's like, I'm going to take this home and do this one at home. Oh, okay. She didn't want me to root it because it is a nice root, yeah. nice and straight, right? So, so she did. She took it home and then she gave it, gave me the dried roots. I still have it hanging. I have it hanging in my uh, living room. The, the the roots that she picked from that from that one root. But yeah, she's she was an expert, and you have to be an expert. You have to do it for years and years, I guess, in order to be able to do that. But yeah, I couldn't I couldn't do that. Right. So then that's the cedar root that we call our cedar root baskets. Then even the cedar boughs themselves are used as well as a smudge, right? So when you think you go back, you know, 150, 200 years, we didn't have, uh, we didn't have sweet grass, we didn't have um, uh, sage in this area. This is the climate isn't that we don't doesn't grow around here, and so when you look at the use of sage and sweet grass in the interior, it's like a smudge, and it's like a cleanser. It cleanses and you know ch chases bad spirits, and that's why they use it as smudge and you know the smoke around them but with our cedar it's used as a smudge but it's actually the crackle of the burning cedar that chases away the bad spirits right, right? nowadays you see people using just cedar boughs but in the old days they would have been using it as a smudge they would actually have been burning it right and the first i first i heard about this i didn't see it happen my younger sister sue sue, sue harris from uh, seabird island she was there and she actually saw uh, little Miss Miss uh, Mrs. Anna Anna Chapman from from American American Creek little, little lady, and she after my mama died, uh, she was good friends with my dad, and she moved up there and was living there. And all the years that we were growing up, we had all these because our house was on an old slide that buried part of the village up there, because on both sides where the slide came down to the river, on both sides this side you could see pit houses, this side you could see pit houses. So that slide buried part of the village. And I think that's probably why we had so many problems at our home. We we're always seeing things like the phone getting lifted off and put back down and visitors bumping somebody in the kitchen. There's nobody in there. Um, one lady talking about the bread box opened and closed and uh, heard a baby crying out the back just as it was getting dark. And our dad wouldn't let us go out there and see. We wanted to go so bad because we thought it was a baby crying in our car. But he said, nope, stay, stay out of there. And I think one of the things that used to happen that we got so used to was actually hearing someone walk up our stairs so walk up our basement stairs from the basement walk through our little kitchen then walk into our big living room we had the living room from one side of the house to the other side and then two bedrooms and then so the kitchen bathroom and the bedroom so three bedrooms but that the steps would walk into the open area of the living room and we'd be sitting on a couch watching tv and we were so used to it we would just sit and just listen to where the steps went because whoever it was would walk through our living room and walk to one of the bedrooms, either to our dad's or to one of the other two bedrooms, and would stop. It never went back. It would just stop. So we'd always be interested. Well, 
where's the steps going to go? Which bedroom is it going to go to? So we kind of listen, wait for the steps to go. And, oh, okay, went to that bedroom. Okay, continue watching TV, right? So those sort of things are were, were happening. I remember when the telephone listed, lifted off the receiver, I just got home, and that's the old, in the old days, you had the wall telephones, right? And it was right behind the front door, kind of in front, so you could actually be talking on the phone and look out the front window. And I walked in, I closed the doors, taking my shoes off, and then all of a sudden my uh, late cousin uh, Margie, my late aunt, uh, her mother Liz, and then also my late dad, the three of them were all sitting there. And they're looking towards me, and then they're pointing towards me, and then they're both going, did you see that? Did you see that? You know, they're all excited. Yeah, yeah, what, yeah, what did you see? What did you see? And then they start telling each other what they saw. And I was like, the way they're pointing at me, I thought they're pointing at me, but they're actually pointing at the phone behind me, and I didn't see it. But while I was standing there, I guess someone lifted the receiver off and then put it back down. And that's what they saw. And so, yeah, so they're just all excited about it and trying to, con you know, confirm with each other that that's what they saw. You know, they're not, we're not crazy. We, all three of us saw the phone lift up and back down, right? So we had all these things like that happening. So Anna Chapman moved in there and the same things were happening. She was experiencing the same things. And uh, so one day I wasn't home. Uh, I'm not sure where I was, but my sister Sue, she thought, and she told me later on what had happened. And she said what Annie Chapman did was she took one of our cast iron frying pans and put it on a stove, went out and collected some cedar boughs, and cedar the, the cedar ends of the boughs, not the whole bough, but just the tips, put them in the frying pan and uh, turned it on on the stove. And once the cedar started cracking and smoking and burning, and then she took that cast iron frying pan and went around to all of the four room, all the bedrooms, downstairs, upstairs, went to the four corners of each room, smudging it and go back and put it on the stove and then go back and carry on. And she did that to the, the whole house. And uh, yeah, as far as I know, nothing, never, nothing happened after that. She, it was a way of cleansing, but that stuck in my mind when I first heard it. And I was wondering, what is she doing? Like, what's that all about? And it's later on when Grand Chief Peter Dennis Peters talked about the importance of uh, not having cedar in the fire. Right, because I remember um, we started doing burnings. And actually, I saw the first burning for, it was when my mom passed away. The late Agnes Kelly came up and did a burning for us. Right. And I remember that's the first time I ever saw burning. Never, you know, I just remember her saying, uh, telling us what it was that she's burning food to feed our ancestors' spirits and feed our mother who just recently passed away. And uh, we weren't allowed to look at the fire. She said, that You can see the pretty colors when the food is burning she said that's the ancestors eating so don't stare at those pretty colors she said you mean you can look at the fire but don't stare at that at those colors which was you know you'd want to stare at that colors but you're not supposed to right and so anyways that's what uh, how I learned about burnings but then um, we started doing burnings my family uh, my cousins there at Chowsel and we did it for a couple of years and we invited our elder at that time Grand Chief uh, Peter Dennis Peter South Almuthuk invited him to come and participate with us and provide us with some guidance. But he didn't come. Two years, he didn't come. Finally, we had a meeting at his uh, daughter, my cousin's uh, Thelma's place, and he just lived across the street. And uh, he came over. And again, this is, you know, when you look at how he did this, it just kind of strikes your mind and makes you, you know, not want to forget that, right? Because he comes over and he says, well... I knew that you guys are doing these burnings, but I thought it was just a fad. I thought it was just something that you guys are going to do and you're going to quit doing it. And he said, but um looks like you guys are pretty serious about it. So I thought I better come over and let you know uh, what I know about it. And he said, well, first thing is you have to have it in the morning, right? And I've been finding this important things about that, about what he was talking about, right? Because you continuously learning, like you learn things, right? And uh, so he says, 
just when the sun is when the light is coming over the top of the mountains, but before the sun starts shining, that's when you do the burnings, right? And so that's so that's one thing. So the second thing, if you're having a fire to feed your ancestors, no cedar. You can't have cedar in your fire. He said the crackling of the cedar chases away your ancestor spirits. If you want your ancestor spirits to come, you can't have cedar in there. He said, but if you need to use kindling to start your fire, cedar kindling to start your fire, then start your fire two hours ahead of time before the burning so that all the kindling, all the cedar kindling is burnt out and just use maple or alder hardwoods that don't crackle because it's the crackle of that cedar, right? So that's what we do. We've upriver. Anyways, that's my understanding. Shohamel, Ralph George, late Ralph George talked about the importance of that. So we've always done our burnings early in the morning, except recently I heard it was changed and it. To me, it seems like we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be adjusting our teachings to fit the, the schedule of our vehicles. Our vehicles should come when we want them to come, right? But it seems like that last burning that we had was because of their schedule. Sorry, whose schedule? The vehicles, the people that do the burnings. Okay. So the word for people that do burnings, uh, they're called vehicles, right? And then uh, you can see the word for fires, and there's fire word for fires, yuk. So Hey, goals. Yeah, they're the ones that do the burnings. They're like our, they're our hands and our feet, right? Um, they only do that work, and we're actually the ones that do the work. And that's why you'll hear the older ones. I don't know if the younger ones say it anymore, but the older ones, that's what they used to say. We're just your hands and feet. You guys are the ones that are doing the work, right? So we're just here and we're putting the food in. They're the ones that are, can communicate with the spirits and get any messages from the spirits. But they're the ones that are doing that for us. But they said the real work is done by us. And that's why I don't know if you saw the book, Being of Good Mind. Mm -hmm. That being of good mind is um, comes from the late Buster Joe. And it's cool because I remember when I first heard the title of the book, I was going, wow, what a cool name. And I didn't realize it came from my chapter. So I did a chapter inside that book. And I talked about what Buster Joe said, because Buster Joe was actually teaching a number of us, Tim Peters, Willie Charlie, myself, I can't remember who they are, about six of us that he's teaching to, for us to um, oversee uh, funerals and, and uh, that sort of thing. But anyways, uh, when he talked about when we were at a burning, that's what he'd all say, ask everybody to be of good mind, like be of good mind. And, and I wasn't sure what that meant, you know, but he used to say it. And it wasn't until actually I became good friends with uh, Keith Carlson. And uh, Keith Carlson actually took me to a Roman Catholic um, ceremony, Easter, Easter, Easter ceremony. I can't remember. He talks about Lent, and I don't know. I hope I'm not getting it wrong. Anyways, he's very devout Roman Catholic. Goes to church every every Sunday, right? I'm a baptized Roman Catholic, but I'm definitely not Christian. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the devil. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in heaven. So I'm not worried about those places. They're not worried about any of that. Because I know I filled my hole in my heart, and I know you know what I believe in, who I'm afraid of, what I'm scared of, that sort of things. And I'm scared of things, right? So uh, there's things out there that need to be scared of, but things out there that you have to pay respect to, and things that you have to understand. But anyways, um, he t uh, Keith invited me because over the course of the years after he started working for us and we established this friendship, and we uh, I started taking him out to places, took him to winter dance, took him to Shwaife mass dance, took him to burnings, first salmon ceremony, all these different things. So I was sharing our culture with him so he could better understand it, so he could do the good work that he does as a, as a historian. And um, so it was one day he says, uh, 
uh, he's going to um, Easter Mass, I think he called it. And he said, I just want to invite you. And he knew that I had no interest in becoming a Christian. Right? He said, I'm not trying to convert you, you know, but um, I just want to share with you a bit of my culture. He said, you've been so generous with me sharing your culture. So I want to share my culture with you. I want you to come attend this, this ceremony. And if you have any questions about it, you know, let me let me know and ask me the questions. I'll let you know what it's all about. So we went to this uh, mass, and it's interesting because they talk about, and I hope I don't get it wrong, and I don't want to offend any any, any Christians, but he's talking about the bread and the wine. And he said that their belief system is that when they eat the bread, they're actually eating the body of Christ, or eating the body of Christ. And, and when they drink the wine, it's like the blood of Christ. They said that the, in their belief system, they have the faith that that is what is happening. You know, so we talked about it later, and he says, well, it's like your guys' faith. You guys have faith in the belief that when you burn food in the fire, you're actually feeding your ancestor spirits. Yeah. He said, when you go to see the bread and wine at a Christian ceremony, you can't see it happening. But everybody, they believe that it's happening. They have the faith that it's happening. Yeah. So the same thing when we're burning food. We can't see our ancestor spirits there. We can't see them, but we know we have the faith and the belief that that's what they're doing. Right. So that's what I realized I when that. we talked about that is that be of good mind means have the faith in the work. Because um that's what Buster Joe says, be of good mind, he said when when you're here. Right. So basically he's saying, believe in the work, have faith in the work, have faith in it that, that it's gonna happen. If you're not in that good mind, then you shouldn't be here. Right. And so we always make sure that people that come if you're going to witness our ceremony, you better respect it. You know, don't be laughing or joking or anything about it. you got to be quiet. Like, it's really important that you're quiet at these uh, at the ceremony. So that's what being of, or be of good mind means to me. Have faith in the work. Because like the, the, the burner said, the chaos, we're just your hands. We're the ones that are putting the food in the fire. We're the ones that have the prayers to call your ancestors to come to the fire, which they're already there. Because our, our belief is as soon as we, get the fire going, our ancestor spirits are there. And that's why we have protocols where we're not allowed to leave the fire alone. Otherwise, you're leaving your ancestor spirits alone. So we always have to, as soon as the fire is going, somebody has to stay there for those two hours until the burning. Somebody's got to be there. Right? And I do that, did that a lot for uh, Shohamo. And same thing, we're not allowed to throw garbage in the fire. We're not allowed to drink or eat because we're going to feed our ancestor spirits. So if we're going to be sitting by the fire eating and drinking coffee or smoking or whatever, we're doing things before we even took care of our ancestors, right? So that's why we're not allowed to do those things. And that's why that fire is considered to be a sacred fire. And so you don't do anything with that fire. You always have to be beside that fire. So that's what that whole thing is. Of be of good mind is to have faith in the work right. that's happening. Right? We have to have faith. You know, it's hard for us today. You know, somebody came walking in that door right now and said, I was just down the river. I saw these three bears, four bears in a canoe, and they pulled over and they transformed this thing down there into rock. There's a rock down there. I mean, we're going, yeah, right. You know, for us being raised in Western society, it's hard for us now to think of that. But when you think back, and the elders tell us that these stories really happen, that they're real, we have to believe. We have Because we have to take ownership of it. Because how can we take care of it if, if we don't take ownership of it? And that's one of the things where have these um, young people that we're training in our in our office. And that's one of the biggest messages that I have to them is you have to believe in these stories. 
you have to believe that they're true, that they really happen. Because if you're going to be standing apart there and not a part of it, don't believe in it, then how can you take care of it? You know, how can you have the heart to take care of it if you don't believe in it? Right? So you have to believe that these stories happened. You know, like Peter Dennis said, it may be hard to believe, but it's true. It's really happened. Yeah. Right? So you got to think that they really happened. You know, until Guterres talks about cacao, so how he pointed the thing, like that, extended his finger out. And that's how he transformed people into stone or into whatever that he was transforming them into. And that's why today we are not allowed to point at each other, right? Because we have our own power. We all have our own spirit power. And if you point at someone, you could actually be hurting them by extending your finger out and pointing at them. Right. So we are not allowed to point at each other. And that's why you go to the winter dance, you see people going like this, always got their finger bent like that when they point or point or nod or, or whatever. People joke about pointing with their lips, right? But it's more like nodding or going like that, right? So... I yeah. think I think that that's so valuable because I do think that you need to believe in something and you need that belief system, whatever it is, whether it's Christianity, whether it's um, indigenous beliefs, whether it's other belief systems, you need something to ground you that feeds you. Because when you talk about these stories, it's it's you're being fed as much as you're feeding perhaps the spirit. Mm -hmm. You're renewing because... Like there's there's overlap between the idea of being at that fire and not eating mm -hmm. and not doing other things to the idea of meditation or yoga. There's that idea of you're here and you're not mm -hmm. going to be anywhere else. You're not going to play music. You're not going to be reading a book. You're mm -hmm. not going to be doing anything. You're going to be focused. And yep. that's that idea of being like mindful. And yep. that word is continuing to grow and there's different forms of it. And I think that it's so valuable to see I don't know, for me growing up, because uh, my grandmother took me to Catholic church, Roman Catholic church to like, and I always felt separated between the two, but I love those moments where you see the overlap between the mm -hmm. two, the faith between the two, because for me, that makes me go, okay, there's, there's parallels and there's beauty in these stories and there's knowledge you can gain from both and you can grow an appreciation for both cultures uh, simultaneously through learning more about both of them and being able to see those overlaps. Because the other one that I love, um, and Eddie Gardner talked about it, is the idea of salmon ceremonies. Mm -hmm. um, there is overlap between the idea of a salmon ceremony and the idea of grace, uh, the idea of praying before you eat and giving thanks for your food before you eat, and the idea of us all coming together as a community, um, having that first salmon, sharing that amongst the leaders of the community, and then putting uh, the the bones back into the water and, and showing that appreciation to the idea of sitting at home and praying and thanking God or Jesus mm -hmm. or whoever your religious person is um, for the food that you're eating. And when I see... And I don't know if you've seen this, um, people who care about the environment, uh, conservationists, when they start saying, I'm going to go vegan because I don't want something else to have to die for me to live. Uh, to me, I like I think of well, indigenous people, we found a way to live with having to kill the bear or the salmon. Mm -hmm. We found a way to find our role within this ecosystem, this responsibility. And when you kill that animal, that fish, um, that life, you have now a responsibility that you've taken on now that you've done that. Mm -hmm. You have to utilize all of it. You have to give thanks for it. You have to understand your relationship with uh, the natural environment and your role within this ecosystem. And I hope that that makes people go forward in a better direction, mm -hmm. that after you you say your grace or you give your thanks, that you are now a more humble, responsible person. And I just, I'm always grateful to learn about these things from individuals like yourself, mm -hmm. because you get that deeper understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, so moving forward, I'm interested to know um, about your thoughts on salmon ceremonies. Can you tell us from your perspective what you've experienced through those? Okay, the first salmon ceremony, uh, the very first one, or the, the place that it used to take place was actually up in, you know, like Wilson Duff collect, collected this. And he said that at the place uh, that's uh, known as Eam, he said that's the very first, I think Harry Joseph was his informant, and he said that's where the very first salmon is caught. And it's actually right where uh, there's a fishing rock there at Eam, in between where Tilly Gutierrez or the Jackson's fishing ground is and Alan, Alan Gutierrez's fishing ground uh, from, from Iwawas, their fishing rock. And there was a kind of like a archway and Tilly said they used to lower them down to that archway, somebody by rope, to catch the first salmon. And of course, when they caught this first salmon, and then you had to cook it and share it with everyone, not just your own family, not just your own community. You had to spread word out for everyone. So you have to share that with as much people as possible. So that's a really important part of it, is sharing it with as much people as possible. And you think about the largest ceremony, first salmon ceremony we had at Koklitsa was about 350 people. So you think about 350 people eating one salmon, right? We'd have a bunch of other salmon for the feast later, but that one salmon has to be shared, right? So we're actually using those little ketchup cups and giving, putting little pieces of salmon in there and sharing it. So that's the first part of it. Second part of it was taking care of the bones. Okay, so you ask everyone uh, there, if they come across bones, to bring them back. We put a basket in the middle of the the gathering place there, and then they come and uh, return the bones back to that basket. The next important thing is, is what do you do with those bones? Well, the bones are returned back to the river. And we're taught that you need to have a leader, spiritual person, a youth, and an elder. Those four, just those four, and you can have many other people as you want. But it's those four are the important ones to go down to the river. So usually after the feast is done, uh, and then that's when those four go down to the river and, and, and do that work. And then while, and the youth is usually the one that's asked to return the bones. Right? And the youth meaning, I was told by the elders, anywhere from five to seven years old, that age. Can you tell us about the other people that you said a spiritual person and you differentiated that from an elder? Could you could you elaborate on that? Well, some elders aren't spiritual, right? So um some like a spiritual person that actually knows how to do spiritual work, like vehicles or shalam or somebody that does that kind of work, right? And so, and even with elders, you have elders who are old people. You also have respected elders. There's a difference there, right? So you respected elders are the ones that have a lot of knowledge and are continuously sharing with you that knowledge, right? And so they're the respected elders. And then you also have old people who don't necessarily have things that they can teach other than their lifelong history. I mean, they'll always have history that they can talk about, but when it looks at um, when you look at uh, aspects of solo culture and history, that's what you're looking for, for elders that can that are able to to share that, right? So right. you always have to have yeah, one of the leaders, elder, spiritual person, uh, and the youth. Right. Those are the four. So as the bones are being returned back to the river, a prayer is said. It doesn't have to be out loud. You just say it in your head. A lot of things that we do is just in our head. We don't say it out loud. Okay, and you say a prayer in your head, and a prayer is said, and that's usually what I was doing. I'd be beside the youth and the elder as they're putting it into the water. And saying a prayer, so I have to say a prayer to the river, thanking the river for bringing the salmon, being that, that river that the salmon can come up. Prayer to the salmon, thanking them for coming back every year, so you're actually paying this respect to them so that they come back every year. That's what you're hoping 
So ceremonies to ensure that they that they come back. And then the next, then the last one, of course, is Chicho Siam, the creator, saying a prayer to the creator for thanking him for creating the salmon and you know allowing the salmon to come up every year. So once you've done that, then that's pretty well the the first salmon ceremony. Right. Okay, let's get into some of your books, because I think that that is a really valuable area because you've built up so much knowledge that people can go back to, they can learn more about, they can educate themselves if they're interested in what you've talked about today to continue to development. I know you brought them. Do you want to walk through each book um, and let us know? Okay, let me just move them up here. And this isn't all of them. There's This is a few of them. The ones that I've been directly involved in, I guess it's probably... I should say. Well, this is the first one that we did. You're asked to witness. We're going to do this like this. Perfect. Yeah. So this is uh, you're asked to witness. Uh, it was 1997, I believe we produced that one. Um, basically, what it was is uh, different aspects of uh, Stalo history, right? And what was happening at that time is um, we were being asked to go visit students because there is there's no other publication out there in the different areas of the provincial curriculum. And so we worked along uh, with uh, Gwen Point. Gwen Point is uh, involved with the education, really involved at that time, meeting with all the different groups up and down the valley and as a, as a teacher. And then, of course, uh, Keith Carlson was, uh, was our historian. And so he is one that kind of edited this book. And, and so we think we had like... I can't remember, 17 different chapters. And I think in the end, we only published 13 of these chapters. And so this was done uh, to provide a ref- reference material for the schools. And so we actually uh, have a teacher's guide and we actually have a teacher's kit. And we wanted to ensure that it was being used as well. So that's why we also, Gwen also made arrangements to meet with uh, teachers, talk with them about how to ensure that they felt comfortable teaching this in the, in the schools. Right. And then so so that was pretty important, uh, important to us. So that's the first the first one. So it has different things in there uh, about veterans, about the land question, uh, uh, all kinds of uh, 13 different subjects, I believe. Right. Um, The second one was this one. So this is called um, I am Stalo. And so this is about my daughter, Catherine, actually. So that's your 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 cousin. Okay, because her mom and your mom or your first cousins. So she's your second cousin. Right. So anyways, um, uh, we realized after we did this, oh, this one was for grade 10, 11, and 12s. Okay, so that was the target audience. And we realized that, uh, and again, we were meeting with Gwen, realizing that uh, grade four was the provincial curriculum required that uh, there was, you know, talk about uh, uh, culture and history in, in that grade. The thing was that we realized is that they were teaching about um, the Haida and the Inuit in grade four. And we felt that if you're here in Stalo territory, you should learn about the Stalo. Right? And so if you actually look at this book, it actually fo- follows the format of the provincial curriculum book that they have. And so we follow the same format. And that's why you read through it and you see it talks about all across Canada and it kind of focus in and then start talking about the Stalo. Now the thing is, at the beginning, we were doing a like a fiction, fiction book, 
But we're totally going against the grains of Stala culture, Stala oral history by creating fiction, because you don't make things up. We are not allowed to make things up. We, you know, when we do oral footnoting, we have to say it the way the elder told us. You know, that's what uh, Frank Malway actually talks about that in the first chapter of this, the importance of, of maintaining the integrity of the oral history, telling it the way it, uh, the way you're told, right? And so we started making, I think we worked for about two weeks and we just kept running into the into the wall by trying to make up a story, trying to make up a name of a village, trying to make up names of people. And finally we just said, we can't do this. We got to do something else. We got to actually pick somebody that's in grade four right. and do a book on, on that person. So my daughter at that time happened to be in grade four. I was part of the, part of the team working and uh, she's actually related to Gwen Point as well. And so we picked my daughter. And then so we did all these interviews and things and in, um, recorded important parts of her history. And so it's all about her looking into her culture. That's the fiction part of it. Is That's the only fiction part is the, um, uh, uh, the homework that she was given to look into it. But everything else in there is all, that's all, that's is all. Is this when you met Keith Carlson? Because you guys uh, have been working together for a very long time. I think we met in 93 or 94. Right. And this is like four years after. Yeah. Wow. And so what has your relationship, just to take a brief pause, what has your relationship been like with Keith? How did you guys meet? And you've been on this journey together, written different books. Um, he's done uh, speaking engagements here in the Valley. What what has that relationship been like? Well, he's my best friend for sure. Um very close to my children because we were best friends and we spent a lot of time coming to my place, coming to salmon barbecues, coming to birthday dinners, that sort of thing. And my children actually call him and Teresa uncle and auntie because they're so close and it's a, not really their uncle and auntie by blood, but by respect, it's a good way to show respect. So they, they call him uncle and auntie. Right. And uh, Keith and I, it's what we call, I think we refer to that in this book, our place book, what sustained Sustained conversations is what we what he calls it, refers to it as. And it's important, I think, that people that come and um, do these different studies with us, that they maintain a very close relationship, sustained conversations. You can't just come in, do something, and then you're out. Right? you got to maintain a friendship. And that's what this is all about, like these people that are in this book. Oh, that's toward, towards... Uh, towards uh, the new yes, ethnic history. Yes. You, if you look at these people that are the authors in these books, and you'll notice, you'll see that they still maintain friendships here in within the stall. Some of them are the teachers way off some some other place, but they still maintain uh, their friendship, right? Yeah. And so that's what we talk about, sustained things. You can't just, you can't think that you're going to go visit an elder and talk to them, you know, for one or two hours, then all of a sudden you have all the answers to everything in the universe. You yeah. can't can't do that, right? You, you have to develop develop um, a relationship with them. And I understood that right at the beginning. And so when, when Randall Paul, I used to work with Randall Paul, um, uh, when I, him and I first started working together, that's the thing that we came up with. We said, okay, when we're going to go interview an elder, we're going first without a tape recorder. It's a just get to know them. And how are we going to get to know them? Well, we're going to talk to them. You know, first of all, we're going to talk about ourselves. Like, who who are we so they can relate to us? Because we knew at that time that you needed to talk about your family so that they get to know you. Then we talk about them. Where were they born? Where did they go to school? Where did they live? Where did they fish? Things like that. Because we're trying to get an understanding as to what they can offer to us. Right? And then once we kind of know that, then it kind of provides us with a foundation to when we return back to them to ask them other questions. Because we know, okay, you lived over here. When you fished, lived over here, where did you fish then? Or when you 
lived every word you pick berries and you know that sort of thing right and then but you got to establish these long lasting relationships so we always go back like i went back to tilly Terrace. i don't know how many times 30 times maybe more alan Terrace, same thing peter dennis peters bill pat charlie ralph george uh, constantly meeting with Rosaline, constantly meeting with Elizabeth Hurling and, and others, right? So um, you can't get everything all at once. You have to have to have the sustained conversation. And because the other thing is too, is we realize that some of these subjects that you, when you go talk to an elder, sometimes these are subjects that they've never thought about for a long time, or it might be something that they don't do anymore, right? And then so when you go and question them about it, they might not be able to share everything with you at the first meeting, right? right? Because they're because you're just asking questions and they oh I've never thought about that for you know thirty years or something and 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 then when you leave, what happens is they'll remember something and they oh I should have told them this or told them that so we knew that was happening so that's why we'd always go back again, and we use that as we say oh this we just want to review uh, what you shared with us here's the transcript here's a copy of the transcript and we just want to talk make sure that we got everything right. But also at the same time, they're going to go, oh, right after you left, I thought of this and this and this. So you always learn more, yeah. right? And so you're always constantly, like, you're always constantly learning. You can't, you know, you can't just learn everything from the elders once, you know, because they had a lifetime of learning. And so what they carry is a lifetime of learning. And even though I look at these elders that I've interviewed over the course of the years, I've never gotten everything off of them. Yeah. Never. I probably just got a drop in the bucket. I mean, the, I think the most I've learned from was probably late Rosalind George or Yamalot. I learned a lot off her, but I don't think I got everything off of her. She just had so much knowledge and she had such a commitment to teaching. Like she shared a story with me once where she said that some of these other elders were approaching her and told her, why are you telling them everything? You shouldn't be telling them everything. You should hold some of the information back. Right. And I think it is because those elders that were telling her that probably didn't have a lot to share anyways right and so Rosaline was getting a lot because she was sharing so much with us and it was interesting really a lot of respect for her response to that she goes how am I gonna or how are my grandchildren gonna learn if I don't tell them everything she said I'm gonna tell them everything right so she didn't listen to that hour she's gonna tell everything and that's how she treated that's how she was when I interviewed her no matter what you asked her about she always was trying to help yeah, right. And that's that's the big fear, right? Is that we're protective to a certain extent of the cultures and traditions because there's certain things you want to mm -hmm. hold uh, what's considered sacred. Mm -hmm. But we're at a time, we're at a point where when we start losing people, we start losing those ties, that mm -hmm. connection, that understanding. And we there's a balance to be found and it's tough to find. Yeah, but there is private knowledge too. You do Families do have private knowledge. Families have certain recipes to smoke salmon or certain ways of doing different things, right? And that's the private knowledge that they retain, right? But then, you know, they'll share that with their children to make sure that their children have that. And, you know, you have your favorite people that you have for dried salmon. Like I have my favorite, you know, of where I go get my dried salmon or who who I get my uh, smoked salmon off, you know, like who's the best butcher and that sort of thing, right? And when you look at that, it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's the private knowledge that they have or the private or expertise that they retain yeah like corky douglas his his butchering of wind dried salmon it is like totally the best like i've never seen anyone uh cut salmon like he cuts it right and um when you get salmon off him he doesn't thin it a lot of other like other people will thin it they take that strip off it doesn't look like he does that he just cuts it and then when you shake it 
all the strips kind of fall over without touching each other. And it has to dry like that. And you get, you get salmon, like when you buy salmon from Lillooet or Lytton, it's like, even though they have the better weather up there and they should be able to dry salmon the way Corky does, they don't. They cut a thin strip off and then you have really thin dried salmon like that thin. You get Corky's and it's like that long. Like it's so, so, so that's what you call expertise. You recognize expertise like that when you start seeing it you start looking at the, you know all your different sources right right yeah awesome and so let's continue with the books okay um, <clears throat> which one's next uh so we finished with this yeah finished with that one talked a little bit about towards a new ethno history so back in 1998 again this is under the guidance oh of, just uh, pull the microphone up oh, just uh back in uh, 1998 we uh along with the guidance uh, of uh grand chief clarence pennier uh, i think this is actually I think dedicated to Grand Chief Clarence Pennier, um, because of his recognition of the experts that we need to involve. Okay, not only recognizing our elders as experts, but he also knew that in Western society there are also experts. There are expert archaeologists, expert historians, expert genealogists, that sort of thing. And recognizing the need for those experts, if we have to go to court about Aboriginal rights and title. Right, so we recognized early on that we needed an archaeologist, so we hired an archaeologist, and then later on we hired a hired a historian, and then that's how this all started with with the ethno history. When you look at our history, that's what this talks about. It talks about how um, anthropologists were doing all this uh, different work, then historians come in, but historians were mainly focused on looking at written records, right, and. They realized, the historians then realized, a bunch of them, Keith talks about that in, in this book, about all these other other historians that realized the importance of actually talking to the people themselves, involving them. And uh, and so that's why the ethnicity. So when they come out here, yes, of course they do arch, uh, you know, history in the archives, doing archival research, but also they also go out and interview people today to talk about you know this thing that they were looking at 200 years ago in these documents. How does how does that fit in with people today? That sort of thing, right? right. So that's what the whole ethno history is is about. And so when they come out, they actually spend one week living in the home of of a, a host family, like like uh, Diane Kevin Gardner was probably the I think they're they're acknowledged in here as well as because uh, they've opened their home up. To many of these uh, students over over the course of the years, and more than one, they have like two, three, maybe three, maybe more. I don't know, at least three people that they would host in their home. So they lived there for a week, and then they would go live in the longhouse for three weeks. And then every morning they had these different uh, classes in session, and then in the afternoons they would carry on with the research, right? And then the other important thing is that this is research that's important to us as well. So we play a role over the course of the year. So Dave Sheppy. Uh, myself, uh, back then is uh, Tia Halstead. She's now retired, uh, but we were and David Smith uh, before her. We we would look at the um, uh, different subjects that we were interested in, and of course, uh, Grand Chief Clarence Penner, with his connection with the leadership, he knew what sort of questions the, the chiefs had about certain things, right? So we wanted to look at research that could be helpful to us, but at the same time, we wanted to make sure the students did a good job of it. So we wanted to make sure that it fit in their interests as well. So we have this big list of possible research topics. And then we'd have a meeting with the students. Well, um, uh, John Lutz from University of Victoria, Keith Carlson, who was then at the University of Saskatchewan, uh, they would meet with their students and talk about their interests. And that's how they would come up with um, a topic. And so the topic was always something that 
we always had. And usually the topics ranged from uh, biographies of, uh, of certain people or history of a place like Eam is one of them, uh, uh, history of um, Suwali, uh, you know, different things like that, right? So that's what this is, that's what this is all about. So we took, I believe, 12, 12 or 13 uh, of those essays and put them in this book. So this is the latest book. That is the newest book, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then this one, uh, Power, Place, Problem of Time, Keith Carlson, uh, um, mainly. Um, well, he's the main author. But uh, it's really cool because what, he, what he's done in here is uh, looking at the um, different parts of our culture and our history. And again, this is something that I, I, I think he actually um, uh, dedicates us to, to myself um, because of the the sustained conversations again, right? So it's really clear to me that um, he thought very deeply, which is what we need. People think deeply. You can't just think shallow. And, you know, and he thought very deeply of these things that we were researching. And he'd look into everything. Like that's another thing is looking into all the different um, materials that are out there. And that's what I learned when I first met him, like the research that he did on the lynching of Louis Sam. Right? And there's, he talks about that in here as well. And so all these different things he talks about in here, and it's uh, the conversations that uh, him and I would have. And I remember um, sometimes he would ask questions that was really clear he thought about, because there'd be questions that I didn't have an answer for, you know, because I'm not, well, I don't know, getting close to being an elder, but I don't consider myself an elder yet. But anyways, um, he'd ask questions, and I'm just like, oh, Keith, like, you got to give me some time to think about that and I'll get back to you tomorrow. Right. So I'd have to think about the question that he asked, but just based on his question, you know that he looked into it and thought a lot about it. And that's why his question is so in depth. Right. And so that's what we need is people like that, that can, that can do that kind of work, really think about it. Right. And I know right now there's people out there that really think that uh, that non-native people shouldn't be doing our research. Right. And they said it should be first nations. Well, I don't think so. You know, I mean, we have our own private knowledge that we retain and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, we have to recognize the expertise as well. And then when you look at the biases that you could have as an individual, right, and then we end up going to court and you have an expert that's acknowledged by Western society, an expert that's carried on with sustained conversations and developed relationships. Like Keith doesn't just have a friendship with me. He's got friendships in Seabird Island, friendships in Chehalis, friendships in Suwali. So it's all these different uh uh, families that he's maintained, you know, either met with their elders and their elders have passed away and now he maintains a friendly relationship with the, with the family of, of those of those people, of those elders, right? Right. So, so same sort of thing. So that's what this is all about. So different different topics that he covers in their power place problem of time. So it's basically all about our different parts of our history as the colonizers come in. You know, he talks about pre-contact and he talks about the reserves um, talks about the flood, talks about Shwokiam, uh talks about the lynching of Louis Sam, so all these different things that are in there. Sorry, about the flood? What? The flood? The Great Flood? The Great Flood. We have our own stories about the flood. Could you tell us about that? I've heard the Kwakwakawak story uh, that they tied all their canoes together and the water rose, um, but can you tell us the, the flood story from here? As far as I know, there's seven places, seven mountains that were sticking up when the flood happened. Right. And so the flood happened very similar to the Christian Bible flood, I guess, but different. There's no Noah's Ark, right? So uh, anyways, um, 
my understanding of it, there's seven mountains that were sticking up. I don't have them committed to my memory, but I know there is seven of them. I have it written down somewhere. Uh, but one of them is uh, Sumas Mountain. Uh, well, the English name is Sumas Mountain, but our name for it is Kakriyak, which means sticking up. Right. Well, why is it called sticking up? Right. So that's the other thing. When you look at place names, you look at what what is the place name? What does it mean? But quite often, you need to know the significance. That's why when you look in this book here, the Atlas, the place names that I talk about in here, we talk about the significance of it because you have to know the significance of it. Because sometimes if we give you the name and the meaning, it's still like, well, why did they call it that? Right? An example I always use is uh, Takals. Okay, that's an important part of your history, is the name of the village in Hope. That was called Takals. It means bare or bald. So if I tell you that, there you go. <laughs> now you know. It's a call. It's bare or bald. <laughs> okay. Well, you're probably wondering, well, why do you call it that? Yeah. Right? So right away, well, why? Because well, that's the significance of it. And so there's a big picture there from that, right? And so every place name, there's always an opportunity to learn bigger things, more things about that name or the activities, things that happen there. And that's what my place name tours are all about. I don't just talk about the place. I don't just go to, the, this is a cause means bearable. Okay, let's go. You know, we, it's it's not that. It's There's lots of other things that you can talk about. So when you look at the calls, why is it called the calls? And so what I found out is that there's a strong wind that blows there that doesn't allow the branches to grow on one side of the trees. Well, how does a strong wind come in? Well, it's the, the, um, I think Brent Galloway talks, the elders told him this. It's the mountains, as you move from Chilliwack up to Hope, the mountains close in. And it creates a funnel effect. And also at Hope is where the river runs north to south. And when it gets to Hope, it turns and runs east to west. So it's also the turning point. And so when the mountains close in, you have the strong breeze that blows from downriver, blows upriver, and it's constantly blowing right there in Hope. And so that wind is always blowing, and it never gives the branches on the west side of the tree, a time to grow. So anytime you go there, take a look at the tops of the trees, and you'll see that it's bare, it's bare or bald. Wow. Yeah, so that's what calls is about. Yeah. I find the flood story, that's where things get like, you have to, you, you have to start to get on board. You can't just think it's a story because... Mm -hmm. The likelihood that there were floods, like archaeologists have all kind of concluded that yep. there was this flood. And so when there's that interweaving between the stories of um, the environment around us and uh, this flood, it's where like we know this happened and we know there's a story that goes with it. it it's where that cross paths where what, how far can you go? How much of this information should you get on board with? And that's mm -hmm. where I think that that door is open to um, believing more in these ideas mm -hmm. and getting more invested in being like, okay, well, the the facts of the matter, the, what we know scientifically is starting to overlap with the stories that people have. How much of those stories can you now, do you now have to grapple with are true because mm -hmm. there's information in there that is scientifically true. How far does that go? We don't know. We don't mm -hmm. have the exact answer to that. Um, your response would likely be, uh, I believe it full with my whole heart. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I agree with that. But for those skeptical people, it's like now this door is open and you can't close it because there's scientific facts here mm -hmm. that you can't brush away as silly superstition anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so this is the, uh, the one about place names, correct? Yep. So this part of it, it's, it's an atlas. It's all the Coast Salish Historical Atlas. 
So this book, how it all started off was we were trying to come up with um, something that we needed to return back to the community. So that was what we're talking about. Uh, because one of the things we realized with the with these first two books, um, what was happening was we were constantly going out to our elders, interviewing our elders, and you know certain questions to come up with these different chapters, right, in these books, or or else even things that don't don't appear in a book. It's research that we're doing for for court case or whatever, right? And what we found was that the elders were treating us, or putting us in the same category as early anthropologists and early linguists who would come into the home, interview people, and leave and not come back. Right? I think um, the linguist uh, Jim Harris from University of Western Washington was a good example of that. Like, heard of him a lot, about uh, him going there, setting up his tent and uh, interviewing Dan Milo, collecting the language and packing the stuff up and leaving made a career out of uh, out of being a linguist using the Helk Malam language. And when he retired, he came back and donated it all to us. But I think that's one of the examples the elders are talking about because the Avis linguist comes in camps and gets all his information from the elder, leaves and doesn't come back, doesn't say anything more, right? And so the elders were kind of feeling the same way with us because they were going, you know, what are you guys doing with this information? Like, you come here and you interview us. You know, like I said, I've interviewed Tilly Gutierrez many, many times. And Keith has interviewed other elders many, many times as well, right? And then so it's like, we're getting this feeling that they're putting us in that same category. And then so Clarence Penny is saying, well, we need something. We need to give something back to our community. You know, we're taking all this information. We need to give it back. So that's what we're looking at. I think we looked at three different books. I can't remember what they were, but there are three different books that we were looking at. Uh, we were looking at a coffee table book. I don't know if you've ever seen the Nishka book. It's a big coffee. It's a book same size as this atlas, maybe bigger. But it has all these big colored pictures of different things. One of the things that it addresses is that whole stereotypical image of how there were Indians, then there's white people, and there's no more Indians, or you know, no more First Nations, right? So, uh, and that's how you see how books are books are lined up. Books they still do that. They still do the put the native part at the front, and then all of a sudden the oh, the native part's over now. Let's talk about the the colonist period, right? With no interaction between natives that, that you know fitting in there. And so that coffee table book, that's what the, the Nishka coffee table book was in color, color pictures to show that their culture is alive. So we're not talking about something 200 years ago that's not there anymore. It's alive and well, and here's people, you know, in doing that. So that's what we thought of. Uh, the other one that we were looking at was the Stein, the Stein Valley book. And the cool thing about the Stein book is that... Um, you can open it anywhere to any one of the pages and you can read something. There's little things in the corner about something else. So you don't have to read it, read it cover to cover. You don't even have to read that chapter, the whole chapter. You can just flip it open and there's something there that you're going to learn something. You know, you have a minute or so, of read this thing, you learn something, right? And so we thought about that as well. And then we also realized um, Clarence, Captain Penner was dealing with through the chiefs with the whole... Um, uh, consultation and uh, accommodation things, you know, different developments when they came in, they had to consult with us and they had to accommodate, you know, our Aboriginal rights and title. And so that was right at the beginning, all that stuff was happening. And also, uh, we were working on these different things with uh, different uh, university students, all this over the years, you know, with some of the stuff that came out in this, yeah. but also before that, so we were having all this reports and things that were piling up in our archives. And so we thought, well, we need to do something with that and give that back to the back to the community. 
So that's how this atlas came about and right. recovered. So we wanted a big book like the Nishka one. We wanted the, the layout very similar to the Stein Valley one. And so that's why we have this one. And then, of course, we come up with all these different um, things. So different people involved in it, like John Lutz involved in, you know, in the labor and uh, Keith Carlson, bunch, a bunch of different things. I was involved in the place names. Dave Sheppey was involved in the archaeology you know, so many different things in there. There's 725 Helk Malum place names, and that's where my expertise comes in. Also talks about the origin of the Shwaifei. Also talks about Stlalakum, supernatural creatures. And the Stlalakum, that's an interesting chapter, that how that came about was I was interviewing Rosaline and Elizabeth Hurling because we had a deadline, right? And we needed to get these place names into this atlas. And I remember the day came where, you know, the editorial board just said, okay, that's it, Sonny, you got to stop. And I, I just said, I keep finding out more stuff. And I'm still learning, right? Yeah. This is 20 years ago, and I'm still learning about place names, right? So we had to cut it off at, at, uh, at uh, that uh, one point. But anyways, I was interviewing um, Rosaline and Elizabeth, and whenever we talked about a place, they'd start talking about a slalakum, which in our language means like a supernatural creature. They talk about a slalakum in these places, and at this one time, we're talking about this place, and they're they talking about Slalak again. And Elizabeth Heron kind of looks at me, and she goes, are you going to put that in your book? And I went, put what in my book? She said, the Slalakum. You young people, you go out into the mountains, you go out on the rivers and the creeks, and you see something or hear something makes the hair rising on the back of your neck. And then you come ask us, what is that? Well, that's the Slalakum. You young people need to know where those Slalakum are. So you should have that in your book. So I brought it up to the editorial board, and everybody got a little excited. Yes, let's do it. So, yes, I went back and uh, interviewed um, Rosaline and Elizabeth, and and from their memories, it's not not a comprehensive study of Stalalakum, and we've never updated it. But there are other Stalalakum that are out there that aren't in this atlas because we just had little time, and we just uh, took what they had as Stalalakum and put a map in there and talked about what uh, Stalalakum is all about. That is brilliant. Have you ever thought about doing like a lecture series on this? Because uh, we're we're just two and a half hours in, and oh. we're we're not even no. in the depths of it. You have had to cut short your some of your thoughts because yeah. of the condensed nature of this three hour interview. And so, have you ever thought about like we're an oral culture, and that's kind of why I like the podcast. I I love listening. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a huge I read, but I'm it's not my favorite activity. I love going for walks and putting on a podcast yeah. and learning. Have you ever thought about doing like a lecture series with UFE or a podcast or something like that? Um, I do, uh, but not a lecture series, more of just a single lecture. Yeah. And a lot of times I have different universities that uh, call me in, and it usually takes me three hours to just do an intro to Stalo culture and history. Yeah. Right? So basically I talk about Stalo, who are the Stalo, what is our territory, you know, work well, what is our language, right, the three different dialects, the different tribal groups, what is Shwokwiam, what is Gwalkwal, uh, what is Shuli, you know, the um, spirit or life force, and what are Stlalakum, um, talk, give examples of different Stlalakum, we have examples of different Shwokwiam, different Skwalkwal, uh, talk about the Shwakwe and the winter dance, talk about the, oh, what's what's missing, the little people, the Mimistiuch, that live, live in the forest, and then the under little people that live underwater, the Salmach, because that's where the Shwakwe mass comes from, comes from the Salmach. So yeah, all these things, I, I, that's what I do. And, I also, and so the Upper River Tour is the one I recommend, although I had someone from the um, Chilliwack tribe didn't want me to say that because the Upper River Tour 
from Chilliwack up to Yale, up to Lady Franklin Rock, or Techlis, where gritting his teeth. From there back down takes seven hours. And I talk for seven hours nonstop, right from the, when we pull out onto the freeway, do five different stops. So I stop, stop there at Hunter Creek, uh, stop there at Floods, talk about the Thunderbird Mountain, uh, go up to Cockwa Lake, go to Suckers, Suckers Creek, Teltite Campsite, and then up to uh, um, Lady Franklin, and then back down the number seven highway. I even have to ask the bus driver to go 80 kilometers an hour, because if he goes faster than that, I'm talking too fast. And I'm trying to get as much as I can in, in, that, in that tour. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, that's a lot of uh, stuff to share about culture. I just think of the setup <clears throat> of like a 12-week like course, mm. a typical university course, three-hour lectures, um, with you being able to share this information, because you do seem... Uh, like pressed for time in yeah. order to share all of this information. I am. And I think that that's, that's frustrating to someone like myself who would be grateful to see you be able to do perhaps a podcast where you're doing three hour episodes each on uh, starting with each topic that you're mm -hmm. interested in and breaking these things down because I'm interested to know where the passion comes from. Do you enjoy what you do? Like this seems to really motivate you, seems to bring out an energy in you. Um, I've had uh, talked to people who they write a book, but they don't, they don't have that spirit in it where they're like, they, this is what they wanted to do. This is the information they wanted to get out there. So where does that passion come mm, from? You? Well, a couple of places. Oh, I hope I can talk about it. <laughs> but anyways, one is, um, I, oh, that's hard. Give me a minute. Uh, first one happened when I was uh, separated from my first wife and really depressed. Like so, so. Um, oh, very much in love. Oh, very heartbroken. And I was living in a home where three of us all separated from our partners. And we're living in the big, a brand new house, but it was empty. There's nothing in there. We didn't have a table, didn't have a couch. We had a TV. I just had a mattress on my floor in my bedroom because I, you know, separated and left everything. And I was very depressed. And every night I would um, go to the Seabird Cafe and stay there till four o'clock in the morning, and go home, sleep for a few hours, get up at seven because I just couldn't stand staying in that big empty house because it just reminded me of my big empty life. <clears throat> so, this one night I got home at 4 o'clock, around 4 or so, maybe 4.30, I don't know, and I tried to go to sleep, and I was so depressed that my, my mom came to me in a dream, and it seemed so real, because I was laying there in my bedroom doors in front of me, and she comes and she goes, Sonny, you're so sad and so unhappy here, you should just come with us, you won't be, you'll be, you'll be good here. You know, and I remember waking up and sitting up, and it's almost like she went behind the door to, to hide. And I jumped up and running and looked around there, and she, of course she wasn't there. So I laid back down, trying to go back to sleep, and just on the edge of sleeping, and all of a sudden my dad comes, and he's deceased already too. And he comes and goes, son, it's no good for you to be here. You're so unhappy. You, need, you should just come with us. You'll be happy if you come with us. 
you know, and again, I woke up and jumped up and he ran behind the door too. And I went, jumped up and looked and he was not there. Laid back down again. I was laying there and then my best friend, the late John Hans, he passed away too. He comes, Albert, Albert, he's, you're so unhappy here. You should just come with us. You'll be really happy if you come with us. And so, and then he did the same thing, disappeared. And I never thought too much about that. And it wasn't until my nephew, the late Derwin Peters, passed away and our family was getting together and uh, talking, you know, about, the, about that tragic loss in our, in our family. And I shared that dream with uh, the late Danny Charlie, very respected man in my life. <clears throat> and uh, the late uh, Buster Joe. And I knew this because my dad had told me before, but I'd forgotten about it. And that's what he said is sometimes when you, when people dream about people that are gone or deceased, that they actually come to you in your dream and take your spirit away and then you actually die, die in your sleep. So I'd heard him talk about that, but I'd forgotten about it. And it wasn't until I shared this dream. I remember Buster and Danny looking at each other and looking, they took turns talking and they said, you should have died that night. They said, your ancestor spirits, your loved ones came and they came to take you. They're going to take you with them. So you should have died, but you didn't. So that means you have a responsibility. You have something to do. There's some work that you have to do. So we don't know what it is, but there's something that you have to do. And so that's why they saved you. That's why they left you. So uh, I will think of that. Okay. That's a driving force. And... The other one was um, interviewing uh, South Almathic again. And we were talking about place names. And as far as I was concerned, he was very helpful with the place names that he was sharing. But um, all of a sudden he goes, you know what, Sonny? And I went, what? I really wish your grandfather was here. I've been talking about my grandfather, like Robert Dennis Peters, or Bob Dennis, as he's known. He's a saxophone player. And I says, oh, really, why is that? He says, well, the information I'm sharing with you is a drop in the bucket compared to what your grandpa could have shared. He said, your grandpa knew all the place names from Yale all the way down to Musqueam. He knew them all. He could have shared a whole bunch with you. So he said, I really wish that he was here. You know, so that really stuck in my mind that I was actually following my grandfather's uh, footsteps. So that's another one. The other one is... Um, keeps me going is knowing that I have ancestor spirits that are watching over me. And uh, it was actually um Indian doctor from the States. Oh, can't even think of the name now. But as a young boy, I remember um, my dad, when we lived in Swazim, my dad would always go get an Indian doctor, Shalam, or a different word for them up there, and get them to do work on the family. And this uh, woman from Lillooet, tiny little woman, he used to always go up and get her. And uh, she'd stay with us for a week, two weeks, depending on how long she did work. She'd work on my dad, work on our mom, work on us as kids, and do all these things that, that an Indian doctor does, right, with a bowl of water and handkerchief and, you know, different things that she did. And I was really intrigued with her, really fell in love, really loved that woman and respected her for everything that she did for us and what she represented, and even though we couldn't speak to each other. And I remember I was so intrigued with her that when I'd get home uh, from school, 
you know, I'd go sit on the floor. She also, she slept on the couch. We had a couch that folded open into a bed, and that's where she slept. And she didn't speak any English whatsoever. But I was so intrigued with her. When I get home, I'd go sit on the floor in front of her, and we just looked at each other. And you know, this um, I'd ask her. I can't remember the Thompson word for for a cigarette. She go hey. And so I take her tin can and take some papers, roll her, roll her up some uh, cigarettes, about ten cigarettes, and I put them in a the can cover it, put it by her feet, and she'd grab one and start smoking it. And then I'd ask her if she wanted a drink of water, I'd say the Thompson word for water, and she go hey. So I go in the kitchen, grab a glass of water, and bring it to her, and uh, she'd grab it and have a drink it. She'd sit there holding the water and have a cigarette and looking down at me, smiling every once in a while, you know. And yeah, I just sit there, just so intrigued with her. And same with my grandfather, um, where I get my ancestral name, Nachachatzi. Uh, so my grandfather is a young boy who's known as, uh, so he's born in 1864, he's known as Bakupsh. As he got older, he's known as Nachachatzi, which means sacred strength inside. If you look at the word, Chacha is in there. The Thompson word, Chacha, means sacred, same as down here. And uh, then as he got older, he is known as Meshkt, and Meshkt means like a storyteller or a preacher. Well, he wasn't a preacher, but he was a storyteller. Uh, when the late Annie York talked about him, she said that he used to, she talked about him traveling up to Spencer's Bridge and then from Spencer's Bridge to Merritt, stopping at all the different villages along that way and sharing stories. So you can imagine back then, no radio, no TV. Uh, it's a pretty important job that he had. And he would stay one or two weeks in the same village and every night go to different houses sharing stories. And about five or six years ago, I found out that he actually went up to Lillooet and met uh, elder from the Okanagan. I think his last name was Tabasket. Anyways, I was talking about my last name. And when I mentioned Mashkt, he goes, Mashkt? And I said, yeah. He goes, that was your grandfather. I said, yeah. He goes, oh, he used to come up here to the Okanagan telling stories. I said, really? I said, I didn't know that. He goes, yeah. And he said, last summer, he said, I was up visiting one of my friends up in Lillooet. And we started talking about Mashkt. And he said that Mashkt used to go up there telling stories too. So really, I didn't know that. I said I just knew that he went from Spence's Bridge up to Merritt, but now I find out that he tells stories up there. So it plays a big role in in my life because of the all the different things, accomplishments that he did, and that's why I lead a alcohol free life because he was alcohol free as well. And also, I look to him, you know, for strong uh, worth ethics to share with my kids, and you know, quite a few of my kids have strong work work ethics, and. Um, because uh, he was a trapper, he had a trap line from Anderson Creek to East Anderson River. Took one week to get to that end. He had a cabin there, and then one week to get back. Uh, when he was eighteen, he moved up to Boston Bar because his mom was from Chiam, his father was from Nickman, and so Annie York said that when he turned eighteen, he moved to Spuzzum and he lived there in Spuzzum because he wanted to be kind of in between and a cutmuch between his father's heritage and the stall of between his mother's heritage. But then when he met his first wife, she was from Anderson Creek. So that's when he moved up there to Anderson Creek. And then so when he moved up there, he uh, lived across the river from where the Canadian Pacific Railroad is. Because the Canadian Pacific Railroad was built from 1882 to 1885. And he actually worked on building those. Uh, so if you ever go up there, you look across to the CPR side, you see those stone stone um, retaining walls. He actually worked on it. He used to cross by canoe to go across there and, and work there. Plus, I New York said that he also worked for the hopyard companies. He was, uh, uh, the hopyard companies would give him money and he would take a train way up on a canal or Williams Lake, somewhere up that way, hiring people, giving them advances and buying their, their ticket, t- train ticket, 
to come down to pick hops either in eggs here in the Sumas or Chilhawk area. And so that was another one of his jobs. And he was also the uh, gold panner. And that's one of the pictures that you can see. There's an old archival photograph of uh, my grandfather uh, taken in front of Lytton, right at the confluence of the Thompson and the uh, Fraser River. And you can see my picture, my grandfather in a white shirt with a hat on. He's has a cradle rocker and my grandmother behind him and my uncle uh, David in front and then my grand-aunt Chet in the background and uh, Mrs. Joe Brown is in there, the two other ladies, don't know, unidentified ladies. Anyways, um, that, that photograph is of my grandfather when he was uh, plaster mining using a cradle rocker. Right. Yeah, and so, so I get a lot of, um, what do you call it? Inspiration. Inspiration from, from him. And yeah, when this Indian doctor from um, the States came up and did some work while we're at the travel council, he was doing work. And that's what Indian doctors do. It's all about our spirituality. That's Our spirituality is all about spirits, like taking care of our spirits. Like um, who was it in, in uh, Old Pierre, I think it is, talks about seven different spirits that we have. And um, anyways... Everything, it's all about that. Like, so if you look at all the different protocols that we have, that's what it's about. When you leave a cemetery, don't you can't leave your part of your, your spirit in there. So the late Edna Bob said, when you walk out of the cemetery, call yourself. So that's what I do. You don't have to call out loud. She said, just say it, call yourself in your mind. So basically what you're doing is collecting your spirit as you leave that cemetery. So when you're walking out the gate, in my mind, they go, Nachachatsi, come on, let's go. You don't need to be here. Let's go. Right, so I call my spirit and make it. And that's the whole thing with the residential school thing that's happening. I'm really proud of my um, nieces and nephews and my daughter because that's what they did in Kamloops. They brought their canoe up there and that's what they went and did. They actually, that's believe that's a teaching that we have. Bring home the ancestor spirits, right? And so they actually have aunts and uncles that went to school up there and that's why they went up there and that's what they did. They did a ceremony because they're really good with drums, they're really good singers, they have strong, powerful songs, and that's what they did. They called their ancestor spirits and brought their ancestor spirits home, right? So same with that Indian doctor when he was doing work on me, and um, I'd never met him before. Kenny Moses, that's his name. Never met him before. And um, I remember this one day, uh, Randall Paul and I went up to Yale. Denise Douglas, she was uh, kind of one of my supervisors back then, and uh, provided me a lot of guidance in some of the work that I do. Anyways, um, she told us, she called us, and she said that this uh, CPR had a bulldozer up in Yale doing some work. And she said, uh, we better go up and go check, make sure they're not uh, disturbing any archaeological sites. So Randall Paul jumped, uh, we jumped in a car, went up all the way up there, and uh, sure enough, the bulldozer was there, but it is gone. But we could see the place where the bulldozer was working. Sure enough, it cut into an archaeological site because we went in there and all the fresh turned over flattened dirt looking in there and sure enough there was artifacts in there and I remember picking up this artifact and I was holding it in my hand like this all of a sudden I started getting really sick like I wanted to throw up got a headache my hands were shaking my legs were shaking I was like oh what the heck's going on so I thought I better put this back down so I put it back down on the ground stood up and I was just standing there trying to collect myself because I was just all shaky and felt really sick and then Randall Paul comes up to me and he says, oh, I'm going to go over there and check in the check in the bush. I said, okay. And I didn't tell him that I was, what I was going through, right? And he left walking over there. And anyway, so we left there. 
a couple of weeks later, my younger sister, Sue, Sue Harris, came to visit in our office. Our office is downstairs in the old doctor's office at the Stoll Travel Council office. She asked how things were going, how's work going, and then I told her what happened. And uh, Randall Paul overheard me. He goes, oh, you too? And I looked at him and said, what? He said, yeah, that's what happened to me as well. I said, really? He said, yeah, remember when I told you I was going to go check in the bush? I said, yeah. He said, well, I felt sick. He said, I thought I was going to get sick. I didn't want to throw up in front of you, so that's why I went into the bush. Anyways, so that happened. Kenny Moses is working on me. And yeah, never told the story to many people, so I don't know. Uh, anyways, he says, um, you start working, and he says, oh, it looks like you went to a place where your ancestors were. He says, I don't know what you're doing there, but you, you reach down and you pick something up off the ground, and you're holding it in your hand, looking at it. And he said, but when you put it back down, you left part of your spirit in that, in that stone that you're holding. He said, but don't worry. I went back there. I collected your spirit. I brought it back and put it back on you. So, so you should feel, feel a lot better. See, and that's what they do. So when you watch Indian doctors that they're doing work, that's what they're doing is taking care of your spirits, right? Seeing whether or not, because they'll, they'll look at you and figure out whether or not there's a bad spirit that's on you or if it's a good spirit. If they find it's a good spirit, you know, they'll look at it, listen to it, all these different things and put it back on you if it's something that you need. Or if it's something that's bad, that's creating a lot of harm to you, then they'll take it and bring it to the window or the door and blow it out and say, okay, that you didn't need that. That was that was really holding you back, right? So we got rid of it, so you should feel a lot better now, right? So that's the sort of thing. But anyways, the other thing he said was, um, oh, you know, it looks like there's an old woman overlooking you on your left, over your left shoulder. She's always with you. Her spirit's always with you, watching over you. And he said, I don't know who she is. You probably know who she is. And I knew right away who it was. Uh, but he says, yeah, because she's there watching over you. And you probably pray to her for, for guidance and help, which I do. like that. And that's that old Indian doctor watching over me. So it was really cool. Like, like wow, how does he even know about this old woman, right? And he said, oh, and also over your right shoulder, he said, there's an old man. He says, I don't know who it is. You probably know who it is. But he's always there watching over you as well. And he said, I think you probably pray to him as well when you need help. And right away, I knew that was my, my grandfather, my dad's dad, Antoine, where I get my name, Nechachatzi, uh, from. Right. Right. So, yeah, that's a little bit about the spirituality. And that's things that kind of inspire me. And um, the importance, I guess, of leaving a legacy for my grandchildren as well. That is an absolutely beautiful story. Um, I just got lost in it because I think <laughs> that it's so it's so important that people find something that matters to them, mm -hmm. that gets them out of bed, that um, I'm sure that there's been a lot of a lot of work that's gone into all of this um, sleepless nights of worrying if you got it right or if yeah. you got enough information. Um, you've worked hard to create different books, build positive relationships with other people. And that's what I want to see, I guess, more of. Like, I, I'm interested to know, do you have someone you feel that is going to be able to take up your mantle, what you've built upon? Because it terrified me at the end of my conversation with, with uh, Mr. Gardner that he felt like uh, he doesn't know where this is going to go, that mm. this is something he's poured himself into that he believes is so important for the Fraser Valley. Like, when he started it, he was like, I'm the only one. And, like, when I started it, it was almost lost when I started it. Mm -hmm. And so for him to put on all that time and then feel like there isn't that next generation to take up the mantle, um, it left me it left me concerned. And so do you feel like the work is going to continue? Uh, you talked about retiring. Yeah, I feel, I feel it will. I think... Um... Uh, 
Well, right now, so in my last year or two of working, the emphasis or focus is on recording. Like I was just given the word the other day to carry on as a teacher uh, or a professor at the UFV who's uh, getting work on the side to record me uh, telling these stories oh, amazing. At, uh, at the different places, right? Now, that's something I didn't realize until about seven, eight years ago, because uh, my, my thought was that we already have everything. You got the atlas. You know, you got the place name, you got the meaning, you got the significance. What else is there? And, uh, you know, they kept talking about, you know, storing these, or um, what do you call it, uh, documenting all these things about my tours. And I was going, why are they? Then I overheard Dave Sheppey. Somebody else was talking to him. I can't remember who it was, but I overheard him. And he said, yeah, we do. We do have the names. We do have the meanings. It's all in the outs. We do have the significance. But what we want is what Sonny talks about. Because what he talks about at those places, that's what we need to record, right? And then I thought about it, and I went, oh, right. Because I don't just go there and just say, place name, meaning, significance, place name, meaning. So, you know, I tell stories about something to me that's important that gives an example of that place name or what that what that place is all about. So that's what I realized is that's the importance of it. So now that I understand that, now my focus is to, like I'm developing a training manual, and now also we're realizing the importance of video and also the importance of um, what are those things called drones as yeah. well. Uh, like last year, I spent some time with uh, uh, Raymond, uh, Raymond Louis and uh, Justin Kelly from Shohamel and also with others from the office there. But um, recording names that are important to Shohamel. Like I think I came up 26 or 27 places within the Teat tribe. And one of the things I realized is you can't capture a place with one photograph. You know, the meaning of the place, you actually need a drone. And so we worked with this fellow from Kamloops, I wish I could think of his name right now, but he had a drone. And I told him that, uh, like, there's a place up above where uh, Kevin Kevin Gardner fishes up uh, by Union Bar. There's the three sisters there. And, well, I can't even think of the name now. But the Three sisters, they were wading on the edge of the river. One was in the water, two were standing on the land, and they heard that Kakao's transformer was coming up. And um, when Kakao saw them, he knew that they were just being nosy. So because they were being nosy, that's why he transformed them into stones. And don't be nosy. Like, you should be out here, like, just being nosy. So the one woman that was sitting in the, standing in the water was transformed into what's known as sister rock. And the other two sisters were transformed into these rock bluffs behind her up in the mountain on the east side of the east side of the river and so in order to capture that i thought using a drone like you can't just take a picture and capture that because when you think about kahal's traveling through the river he's in a canoe right and so i thought well if the drone could travel along the water like as if you're in a canoe and you get to these important places where something had happened to try the best capture that would be being in a canoe approach Sister Rock, you know, and then kind of have the camera kind of go up into the two behind her. And so actually capturing all three of them in the same photo, but you just come up the river by canoe and then you come to these three rocks. I thought that would be like the best way to try to capture that. And same with an idea for, we haven't done it yet, but the calls, you know, try to capture the calls in the photograph. So everything I told you about the funnel effect of the, the, of the the valley, the river changing, the importance of that whole flat. Try to take a picture of that. You can't. Yeah. It's, you, you know, there's something missing. 
So I feel, again, that a drone would be really good where you're traveling upriver again, because from the river perspective, everything is from the river perspective, getting out into Hope, seeing the whole, seeing that the, where the river turns and seeing the Fraser coming down that way, seeing the whole flat and then kind of up and then go right to a tree that has bare or bald. And then that, then you capture the meaning of the calls and the calls isn't, you know, it's not just that tree, it's that whole flat and that whole village site there. Yeah, I think that that is necessary. I think that having the recordings that you guys have, I think that like, I love what Stolo Signal is doing, but I think we need mm -hmm. more more longer form. Mm -hmm. I think that I do believe people can handle a three-hour interview. I'm mm -hmm. confident that particularly Indigenous people, we say we're from an oral culture. I yeah. want to see more Indigenous people like yourself doing podcasts where you're laying everything out long form. It's just talking and that makes it so accessible for people when they're driving, when they're cleaning their house. It's just so easy to consume the information. Whereas with books, people are always tr trying to find the time. Um, so I'm I'm hopeful that um, seeing people like Stolo Signal, I know that uh, Dan George has his own podcast. Mm -hmm. um, that gives me hope that we're going to have this information more readily accessible for people who want to learn more. Well, I'm really encouraged with the young man that uh, actually works in their department, just started a few months ago. And he's actually the late Tilly Gutierrez's uh, great-grandson. And it's only recently that uh, we have identified him, and he's very... He's totally into it. I think he probably gets his inspiration from his great-grandmother because Tilly Gutierrez, as a young girl, as part of her puberty training, she was brought and sat where Chechel sat at Tachlis. She was sat there and left there overnight. It's actually my great-grandfather was one of her elders who brought her there and, wow. and sat her in that rock. And she had to stay there the whole night as part of her puberty training. And once other elders realized that her responsibility was to maintain the oral history, the Shofiam stories, the stories about Chechel's, Elders elder just came to her. They're just telling her. And she said even from other territories, they're coming and telling her story. Once they heard that she was given that responsibility. So that's why a lot of the Shokvayam places, there's always the Tilly Gutierrez version of, of that story. Right? And so this young man from uh, Chiam, well, he's a council member now at Chiam, just, just recently became a council member. His name is uh, Ray Douglas. And he has a super keen interest. Like, um, you know, it's part of his job. But also it's part of his personal life. Like, um, I don't know, I think he might have felt that he was intruding too much. I, mean, I kind of miss his uh, text, but every weekend he'd uh, text me or something, you know, message me on Messenger and talk about something that he's looking into. Oh, this weekend I went and did this. And what do you think about this? And, you know, so he's got a really keen interest, you know, not just from his work point of view, but in his own personal private time, he's looking into it, right? So I'm really, really thinking that he's he's the right person, that he's going to carry this on. There are other people that have been identified in the past. I mean, my late cousin uh, Nelson Leon was another one, but then he passed away a few years ago. That was such a tragic, tragic loss to, to our communities. Like he was from Chehalis. He lived in Squaw. He worked down at the Surrey School District. He was involved with so many different aspects of Stola culture and history and had a keen mind, keen interest, and came up with me on some tours and stuff, but then, yeah, he was lost, tragically. It's a very tragic loss. Uh, another person is uh, Tarrington Press from uh, from Square. The only problem with Tarrington is that he's very good at what he does, so he's a good interpreter, uh, and he's very good at doing the interpretation for the Longhouse Extension Program there at uh, Kokolitsa, and also the, the what's called the Stakaya Program, like he goes out to the different schools, and that keeps him very busy. 
And when you look at the people that he worked with, it seems like he's the outstanding person there. But that's the problem is that he's so busy there, he can't come. Like he's supposed to come out with me and um, you know, out on my tours and learn. He's come out in a couple of times, but it seems like his big focus and even his own staff there, because of because it's such an asset to that program, they hold him back. You know, we try to make arrangements for him to come and they go, oh, he can't go. He's staying here. <laughs> right. So he's really good that way. But yeah, hopefully sometime um, when other people there fill his shoes, maybe he'll start coming out with me and to the broader broader area and start learning more. I know even that one morning he was supposed to be there. We were setting up a tour down by the Chilliwack River and we were supposed to meet, I think it was at one o'clock, and we are supposed to spend a couple of hours developing that tour because it is the first time I was doing a tour down by the Chilliwack River. And so I wanted to talk about things around us that we could point to. So when the kids come, because of the COVID thing, we're doing it outdoors, right? Yeah, and then he was late. I don't know, I can't remember why he was late, but I just kind of was wondering, well, he's not interested that much, I don't know. And so we didn't get to talk too much about the stuff that I found interesting for that one spot, you know, because you can pretty well, I've done it for other schools too. I can pretty well go anywhere that they want to meet and just look around and just talk about everything around. There's always something, you know, if you only got an hour or 45 minutes or sometimes just in half an hour, there's so much to talk about. Like there's a school down by behind the old UFB campus. I did a talk down there and it's only like half an hour or 45 minutes. And, you know, time just goes like that because there's so much history around any place. You can travel anywhere in Southwood and just stop, look around, and there's stuff to talk about, you know. Yeah, I think that we're so lucky with individuals like yourself, and it sounds like there's potential others to carry on this work, because I think you set such a good example in so many ways, because uh, you haven't focused too much on it, um, but your choice to stay away from alcohol and that decision, um, I think, sets such a good example, because um, I'm sure you know, within Chawatha, we've lost, to me, some pretty pretty remarkable people who could have made a real difference, uh, in my own opinion, um, like Julian Yali just always mm-hmm. stands out to me as like an incredible light within within hope, but within the lower mainland. And the fact that she's not here and those moments are just so unfortunate to me. And so for your decision to do that allows you to be here, be 100% present, share your knowledge, build more knowledge and be 100% focused on this um, when you're meeting with elders, when you're working um, with people like Keith Carlson to be present and to really make sure that this information is here because mm-hmm. those extracurricular activities, they are a distraction that seem to eat away at people's ability to focus on what they mm-hmm. care about. And so I think that that's, that's a good example. I think choosing to work to share this like uh i think you said one of the elders was dedicated to sharing this information i think that's so important Mm -hmm. and you've been willing you've been willing to come on here you've been willing to write books you've been willing to meet with different stakeholders and try and find that middle ground so we can keep this information alive um and i think that 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 just sets such a good example and we're lucky to have individuals like yourself who are willing to take the time and to to share your expertise so I really appreciate you yeah. being willing to come on and share your information. Uh, and we just did over three hours. Wow. <laughs> Doesn't seem like it. 